When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host David Park. Our guest tonight is J.R. Seeger. J.R. served as a Army infantry officer and then went on to have an extensive career in the Central Intelligence Agency, which included leading paramilitary teams, one of the first teams into Afghanistan, amongst many other postings around the world as uh, chief of station, chief of base, all sorts of interesting things that JR will be able to get to in varying levels of detail as he's allowed. Um, he is also an author. He's an author of the Mike Four series, and he is the author of a steampunk series. Uh, this is A School for the Great Game. And I, uh, well... JR, I've wanted to interview you. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. I really appreciate you uh, doing this. Well, it's my pleasure, guys. I mean, it was uh, the reason I, I didn't have any idea. You, you interviewed a teammate of mine, and you looked right in the camera and said, hey, JR, if you're watching, I want to talk to you. So <laughs> that's, that's actually why I'm talking to you today. <laughs> you're talking about we had uh, Justin on? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Justin Sapp, we had on uh, a little while back. He was great. We had him in studio. So for folks who are watching, Justin was assigned to special forces, but was detached to 
one of the CIA paramilitary teams in Afghanistan, Alpha Team. The Alpha Team leader was this guy right here, JR. So that's why I wanted to have him on the show. Um, JR, let's, uh, let's just kick it off. I'd like to hear a little bit about your origin story. We ask our guests to tell us a little bit about their upbringing and sort of that path that took them into governmental service, in your case, into the Airborne Infantry and then the Central Intelligence Agency. Okay, well, it's uh, not terribly exciting. I mean, basically, I grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad was a railroad engineer. Grandfather was a railroad engineer. Uh, you know, there, it was just a blue collar family. I grew up in a, a little tiny rural town. It's, uh, today it's not quite as rural as it used to be, but it was a rural town outside of Buffalo. And, uh, then, uh, I, my folks made it very clear. I was going to college. I mean, it was just like there, there was no, I mean, I was either going to go to college or they were going to knife me in my sleep sometime. You know, I mean, it was really that, that straightforward. And I, I was fine with that. I mean, I was, I was not a terribly interesting kid. I mean, I had school and I had sports. I was, uh, I played soccer and I was a wrestler. That was it. So, uh, honestly, if it hadn't been for the New York state region scholarship, I'm not sure I could have afforded to go to college right after high school, but I did. And uh, I was able to go to a a small school, a college called Eisenhower College. Now, for those of you who might look it up, you won't find it because Eisenhower College folded in the the late 90s or mid 90s, actually. And, uh, you know, it was a a school that was designed at the request of President Eisenhower to create a a cadre of people who were experienced in world events and worlds, it was called world studies. And and one of the reasons it wasn't terribly popular is because you didn't get, uh, you didn't get any electives until you were in your second semester of your junior year. But, I mean, I, I, you know, to give you a feeling for how the school started, class one in the big lecture hall was on the creation of the Chinese empire. And wow. then class two was on uh, Confucianism. And then class three was on Chinese literature. And then class four was on, you know, was and, and it went across the world. So we learned about not just European history, but Asian history, African history, and African culture, African art, Asian art, Asian culture. So it makes me an actually a pretty good cocktail party guy. I can talk for about a minute about just about <laughs> anything, uh, you know, and, and more than once in my career, I have looked a guy in the eye and said, Mahjong. Yeah, I know what Mahjong is. I've always wanted to play Mahjong. And then, of course, I go home and open up my books and figure out what the hell Mahjong is. Is it a, what is it? Is it a sport? Is it a game? Is it a board game? What is it? But anyhow, uh, I I mentioned and have spent a little bit of time focusing on that school because the only reason I ended up in the CIA is because of Eisenhower College and really? not the way you think. 
anyhow, I went, to, I went out of college. I then went to graduate school where I came to the realization that I was a pretty good student. I was a terrible scholar. Uh, I learned that lesson when the head of the department pulled me aside and said, you know, JR, your grades are really good. You're never getting a degree here. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you don't have to throw a brick through my window to make me realize I need to go away. So uh, after my master's, he got the, the chairman of the department got me a job as an archaeologist, and I was an archaeologist for a year in Wyoming. This is uh, 19, 1979, 1980. Two things happened, of course, during that time period, the hostage crisis in Iran and the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan. And uh, I had always been interested in thinking about how I was going to do service. In fact, in, uh, while I was in grad school, I sent a note to uh, uh, an application to the CIA. In the old days, you had to mail it in. And I got a letter back that said, no, thank you. So I was like, okay, I guess that, you know, that's so far my career progression is really working well for me, right? I mean, everything's, everything's doing fine. I keep asking for stuff and people keep saying no. Um, so then um, I joined the army and uh, that was a shock to my, my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. She was like, uh, you did what? Uh, yeah, I, I enlisted in the army. Uh, as a private and went to Fort Knox, Kentucky in basic training as a 26 year old. Uh, and then uh, went to OCS and went on to, you know, airborne school, ranger school, all that stuff. And then uh, did uh, four plus years with the 82nd as an airborne infantry officer. And then progressively uh, a couple of other staff jobs before I uh, was getting ready to go on to the advanced course. And I guess most of your folks would know that unless you're really, really good and you're an OCS officer, you're at the bottom of the pile. And, and I used to think that was just, you know, prejudice. But I understand now, having done a, a long career in the federal government, that they're just amortizing their investment, right? Mm -hmm. costs a lot of money to put a, an officer through West Point mm -hmm. and a lot of money to put him through ROTC. Uh, I got commissioned after four and a half months as an E4, uh -huh. a specialist. So it didn't cost them very much to put me into that commissioning source. So I am trying to figure out what's going to happen to me when I'm working in my office at, uh, I was the, the air, the S3 air in my battalion, which is, you know, in an airborne battalion, there's got to be a, an NCO and an officer who design all the jumps and get the airplanes and get the parachutes, all that stuff. And I get a phone call says, Hey, Captain Seeger, uh, we understand that you're thinking about, uh, uh you know, what's going to happen next. And we'd, we'd really like to, uh, talk to you about an op opportunities in the CIA cold call. And I'm thinking really, Really, this is how you do this, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I turned to my partner in crime at the time, uh, 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 an E7 that I I'd done a lot of other kinds of stuff with him, and I said, Chip, here's the deal: they want me to meet this guy at a hotel. If if I end up face down in the Cape Fear River tomorrow, <laughs> I want somebody to know what the hell was going on. So 
anyhow, that was just that that's sort of the, what happened. I wasn't it was a real deal. And I was puzzled for years as to how I was approached. Well, it turns out some many years later that uh, classmates of mine at Eisenhower College were already in the CIA because their parents were in the CIA. Oh, interesting. And in, and in those days, that's, you know, not the only way that things could be done. But it was one of the ways that things were done. Today, of course, for anybody who is interested, uh, you go online and like every other part of the federal government, you apply online. And the process then goes into a, uh, you know, a, a protected environment. Uh, but there, you can't ref, you know, refer anybody. Uh, what happens is they, you go out, you know, the applicants go online, which is a good thing because quite honestly, if you have these referrals, everybody looks, ends up looking like the next guy, right? I mean, you know, and, and we need all kinds of different people in the CIA today. Uh, and so anyhow, that was, that was my entrance into the CIA. I worked, uh, into a training program, which the selection process, I don't know what it is now, but the selection process when I was going through, I started in uh, April of 85, and I was certified as a case officer in June of 86. So it's approximately a year plus of different steps along the way. And uh, then... By that time, uh, I was married, and I had convinced the agency. Uh, actually, I walked into a personnel office and said, this is my wife's resume. You can see that she's really the smart one of the two of us. And they looked at the resume, and they said, you're absolutely right. We're interested in her because she is much smarter than you are. Uh, so they hired her. And uh, then as to onward assignments, basically there were two different outfits that were two different parts geographic divisions they don't have those things anymore but they they were in the old days there were geographic divisions and a director of operations there were two geographic divisions who were asking me if i was interested and i basically told them whoever hires my wife is the one that's going to be you know on the on the list so it turned out that it was near east division and uh which was actually okay by me because I'd already served when I was in the army, I served in the multinational force and observers in Egypt. So I thought, that's cool. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, Arabic's tough language, but I can do that. So I get off my, my, you know, one week leave after this uh, months of training and I go in and they said, good news. You've got an onward assignment. Uh, bad news you're late for language school. And I'm like, okay. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be uh, Dari. And I'm like, okay, not <laughs> having a clue what Dari is. Not a clue. So I said, okay. And they said, well, you know, you're late. Get, get down to the, you know, to State Department because that's where the Dari language school is. Check. Uh, and, uh, so what I found out was, of course, it's Afghan Persian. And all my peers who were onward going on to onward assignments and they were going to study Chinese and Arabic and Russian, 
they were like, oh, JR, you're so screwed. I mean, you are, no one is going to care. You know, you're going to finish off a tour someplace and then you're never going to be able to use your language again. You're going to have to study another one. I was like, well, you know, orders are orders. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I just came out of the army. I know, I don't, I, my hair hadn't even grown out yet. Uh, you know, I get it. Uh, orders are orders. And so, of course, it, you know, in the long run, uh, Afghan Persian turned out to be a pretty good language to have. Yeah. So what was that uh, first assignment then? You said you were in the Near East Division. Uh, what did that look like for you? And what year was it by that time that you, after you finished, uh, you graduated your training? So, well, okay. So I, I went to my first assignment in 87 because it was a year long language program. And uh, as I told you earlier, I, I have to just sort of be generic. I, sure. it was, it was in uh, South Asia. You, you can do them. You can do the math. Uh, and uh, I was, I, I was assigned instead of a standard sort of conventional tour, I was assigned because I had the Afghan Persian. And for those of you, it, for, you know, your, your listeners who don't remember this time period, the Soviets had occupied Afghanistan and mm-hmm. they were fighting the Afghans across the entire country. So I was sent in uh, along with a couple other people to, uh, to meet with Afghans uh, Afghan resistance guys. Now, this was not in any way, shape, or form associated with the the paramilitary weapons program that we had at the mm-hmm. time. And and that's, you know, it was super secret then, but, you know, let's face it, once you start to deliver Stinger missiles into Afghanistan, it's kind of a clue who's in charge. We've, but, uh, uh, we've had uh, Baz Basil on the show before, um, who may have mentioned a little bit about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Baz was one of the guys. Actually, Baz and uh, there was a, my very first job uh, in the agency before I was in the pipeline was down in uh, the sub-basement in the building with guys like, uh, w- in fact, with Baz and, and a number of other guys. We refer to ourselves as the methane breeders because, of course, I you know it's a it's a heavy gas and it goes down into the basement. Anyhow, uh, so I I spent three years uh, meeting Afghans, night after night after night, who had just come out from a war zone and were willing to talk about what they were doing, uh, and so that's what I did. I, I debriefed uh, soldiers. Basically, it was a a very unconventional sort of environment uh, for me. And, uh, and that was my first tour. Uh, you know, if you, no matter how bad your language might be, if you meet guys like six nights a week for three to four hours in a night, pretty quick, you get, you know, unless you're really a, a dim, uh, you get to, you know, you get pretty good at the language. So that's, that's sort of where it was. And, I was uh, finished my tour. Uh, I had a. I, I got into a tiff with uh, NE Division. Uh, it was my fault, uh, really, quite honestly, because I told them that I, I would had been working with SAD guys and I wanted to go. Work in SAD, and they said you don't seem to understand, young case officer. We, uh, you, you're an NE guy. You're going to be an NE guy. Okay. Uh, well, anyhow, uh, 
for all of the things that we can say bad about Saddam Hussein, the fact that he invaded Kuwait actually made my life much easier in one respect, which was uh, they had a job for me, which was a crummy, what, what I, you know, they thought was a crummy job. It was a great job for me. I was in a desert shield, desert storm in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. There was no other uh, agency officer there that could work with the Saudis and work with the military. So uh, that's what I did for a better part of a year. I was the, uh, you know, this is a classic sort of story. People say, how can this possibly be? But it's a classic. It's kind of like the story. Uh, there's a there's an old story about Texas Rangers. And there's a story about in the, in the 20s, there was a, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a riot uh, a, in Waco, Texas. So one and riot, it was a one social, ranger. <laughs> one riot, one ranger. Exactly. You know. <laughs> And so the idea is, is that I was the, uh, the agency LNO for 18th Airborne Corps, uh, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, and uh, eight, uh, the 1st uh, TAC Fighter Wing. So I kept pretty busy uh, during that time period. It's mostly uh, because of my background, it was mostly associated with uh, what at the time was called uh, force protection but really was counterterrorism, counterintelligence mm-hmm. stuff. And I uh, did that for a bit until I you know, returned. And then uh, they, uh, by that time, all was forgiven. And uh, the Near East Division said, we've got another job for you and your wife because uh, we're a tandem couple, which makes life kind of complicated. I had told them they could send me anywhere in the world so long as there were two jobs. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. È arrivato il nuovo Doblo, guidato dall'ingegno. Corri in concessionaria e approfitta degli incentivi statali sull'acquisto della versione 100% elettrica di Doblo. Con Leasing for Pro, anticipo 0 e 59 canoni da 274 euro al mese. 60 mesi, riscatto 10.056 euro. Importi IVA esclusa. Tanfisso 4,50, TAEG 5,91. Offerta FCA Bank soggetta ad approvazione in caso di rottamazione. Per info sugli incentivi statali, verificare sui siti delle autorità competenti. Fino al 30 settembre. Info su fiatprofessional.it so they said, we, we got a job for you. And it was, uh, a, uh, it was actually a very, very cool job. It was uh, in a uh, specialized, it would have been called, it was a specialized station. This is a long time before these kinds of things happened before, where it was a, a station going after Near East, Rogue State, uh, 
proliferators, terrorists, and uh, counterintelligence officers. So I did that for four years, working my way up from being a line case officer through to uh, managing a team, hunting one of these rogue state, uh, well, all the rogue state intelligence services, basically, that we were working after. So both their military and their civilian uh, services, which was great. Uh, It meant being on the road about 20 days a month. So if you can do the math, it, it means, you know, I was home on weekends and, and leaving every Monday. And being in this was a tandem, uh, a tandem tour. Mm-hmm. So it was a tandem. So my wife, if you're going to ask my wife, it is, um, was what's called a reports and requirements okay. officer. Uh-huh. Now it's called, now they're called, uh, a uh, CMOs, I guess, right? And, uh, you know, the only reason to go out and do stuff, of course, mm-hmm. is to produce reports. By this time in my career, I'd come to the realization that although every case officer has to be a both a hunter and a handler, I'd come, every case officer by their second tour ought to know which they're better at. Uh-huh. And I'm a, I'm a better handler, quite honestly. And you can, can, I can, I can basically squeeze intelligence out of uh, just about anybody. And can you tell us sort of, uh, you know, in, in like case officer vernacular or whatever, what the difference between a, a hunter and a handler is? Okay. So, so in, you know, in, in the spy world, there are two things that have to be done, right? One is produce intelligence and that's done by people who are handlers. You debrief people, you, keep them on board, you make sure that they are, uh, are productive, that they're safe, that they understand what they're supposed to do for us, right? Uh, the, but you're always, you always need new business because, you know, guys uh, decide somewhere along the way they don't want to do it anymore or right. they want to retire or they want to or they get caught. So you always have to have new business as well. So the hunters uh, end up finding and recruiting the new spies. Now, most hunters prefer to just once they once they've recruited a spy, they prefer to go and recruit another spy because it's what they like to do. Uh, in uh, and then, man, that's not to say that you can't in in. In the CIA, as a case officer, you must be able to do both, right? But, uh, you know, pretty quick, like I say, you, you, early on, you figure out what you're better at. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, uh, I was, I'm not doing it at all anymore, but I was better at producing intelligence, taking the requirements, uh, designing them so that the debriefing makes sense, doing it in language, uh, and keeping the asset safe because that's our primary directive, right? I mean, the more, more than anything else, the CIA is a place where you are expected more than anything else to keep your asset alive and safe. Teach them how to be safe because they don't know. It's not their profession. Right. So it's, it's our tradecraft skills that we use to do that. 
And then afterwards, you had a uh, a more conventional tour in a South Asian country. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was a base chief uh, running, uh, you know, regular espionage operations. Uh, and I mean, it, it was it was a good tour. I mean, it was an OK tour. I did. I did two years there. And uh, I, I mean, I can't really talk very much about the, the cases, but I mean, basically it was classic spot assess, develop, recruit, and handle, and then manage young case officers who are spotting, assessing, developing, and recruiting. Uh, and it, and as, as was pretty typical of the time, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, you have to remember that we're talking about now. Now we are talking about the uh, post-Cold War world. So there's lots of different kinds of people who five years earlier would have been great targets and are now our allies mm-hmm. or at least our, at least our neutrals. And then, uh, but there's always going to be targets out there. And of course, if you, and, and also you're always going to be looking at uh, local targets if you can. Uh, it depends on the, the, it all depends on the security environment. Mm-hmm. And I was in a pretty, pretty rigorous security environment. So we didn't do a lot of that stuff. We did an awful lot of third country national stuff. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, I mean, during all of that time, actually just before the conventional tour, during the other tour, I got grabbed up and, and uh, opened up a provisional station in the former Soviet Union. Wow. So that was another one of those classic sort of stories of, hey, who are we going to send to this? Oh, <laughs> We'll just send this guy. Why? Well, because he's reliable, but he's also disposable. You know, I mean, it's just a, it is uh, when I was sent to, there was, you know, a bunch of teams all going out, right? This 1992, the, the uh, USSR had collapsed. All of these places are opening up and uh, I'm getting my in brief and I'm looking around with all the other guys that are there. There's nobody who was from Russia house. Like it's all of my pals who were in, like have been in Southeast Asia or Africa or any, or someplace like that. And uh, you know, okay. You know, it turns out of course, Afghan Persian uh, is, is actually pretty well translates uh, across to the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, if I had spoken Russian, it would have been great, but I didn't. But mm-hmm. I could speak Afghan Persian. And so, you know, Afghan Persian works pretty well for Tajiks. It will, you can get along with Uzbeks. You can get along with Turkmen. All those, those Southern uh, Central Asian countries. Did they, so also, did they also send you Jr. on a on a job like that because they figure, oh, this is an army guy, like he can sleep in the dirt and like use a rock as a pillow, like you know, it's it's not that big a deal. Well, it's that. I mean, it, that's true, but it's also <laughs> because most of these places 
right after the collapse of the Soviet Union were at civil wars. Mm. Right. I mean, so or close so, to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of the kinds of things I did there, and it wasn't for very long until the station was formalized, but, uh, you know, it was a provisional station. It was really 19th century sort of, of uh, intelligence work. It was like, go spy the land. Go out and see every day. You like, walk out on the street, see who's shooting at somebody else, uh, you know, get in a car, figure out where the shooting stops, give us a better feeling for what's going on. It really wasn't an espionage tour. And, it, and you know, fair enough. I mean, my, my successors, you know, or the people who opened up the station afterwards, they, you know, they were able to, to conduct conventional espionage. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't what they asked me to do. And uh, that was a good thing because is isn't what I do anyhow. When, out, out of curiosity, when you say that, like, in all these former USSR, Soviet Union countries that – Nobody was from Russia House or the people weren't from Russia House. Is that because they were all drunk wondering what had happened to their career and their life with the fall of the <laughs> Soviet Union? No, actually, it was because they were in Moscow. Okay. Right? I mean, they were, they were doing stuff in Moscow or in St. Petersburg or in places where the KGB was running away for, to, you know? I mean, right. there, was, there were lots of – there were lots of it, – it was – the, the collapse of the USSR was a, you know, it was a catastrophe if you were a KGB agent, right? right. I mean, uh, because even if you were only in the first chief directorate, which was the Foreign Intelligence Service, you couldn't say to your, like your neighbors, oh, I'm with a, I was with the KGB, because they're going to think about the other side of the KGB, which was the, you know, the totalitarian uh terrorizing people stuff so there was a lot of work to be done in those places it just wasn't going to be in uh, the fsu right. which is fine because turns out of course the fsu turns out to have been a fascinating place for the for the agency and for state department for that matter uh and for the military i mean i you know one of the things that if you read like Toby Harden's book or if you read Doug Stanton's book about uh, about uh, the operations in Afghanistan, the uh, one of the ODAs, ODA 595, had just come back from working with the Uzbeks. Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, it turned out to be a, a really important. It turned out to be a really important thing to build a network of allies. Mm-hmm. During that time period, I, I, I take no credit for that. My uh, because uh, they were just the, the guys who were eventually were in charge were still shooting at each other when I left. But mm-hmm. but but eventually, I mean, you, you got to start with a footprint someplace, and that's what we did. You know, a lot of times it's the it's just a footprint. That's all you do, and uh, you got to be ready for the fact that it's not always uh, you know great uh, intelligence operations or great paramilitary operations. Sometimes it's just spade work. Right. And, uh, and, and then after that, you had a couple stateside tours. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Well, I mean, the stateside tours, I mean, so two things. Uh, by that time, I was relatively senior, so I was managing the teams. Uh, not necessarily a station, but uh, flyaway teams. And we were just using uh, the U.S. 
as a start point to go after all kinds of different sorts of targets all over the world. And we, uh, my team wasn't the only one that did that. I mean, but that's, that was the state side. In the meantime, while since I was you know, not doing a lot of that flying away, some, but not as much, because I had to be home managing and talking to guys, making sure that they followed all the TDY rules, make sure they don't get caught, all that. So what I did was uh, I was responsible for working with the FBI uh, on counterterrorism stuff. At the time, counterterrorism was a, this is the late 90s, uh, going into just before, well, I was in, I was in stateside for, uh, through 9-11. But the, uh, the FBI had, you know, a, a challenge because at, before 9-11, the idea was that the that counterterrorism was something that was really hard to prove, and uh, and it was really hard to build networks the way the FBI is really good at building networks on other kind of criminal enterprises. I mean, the FBI don't ever think that if the FBI is after you, you won't get caught. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just here to tell you, their work is exceptional. But it was. A challenge, and here I was, a guy who had spent basically from 1987 until I arrived in 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 California in uh, in 1997. I'd been a guy who had you know worked with on, on terrorist targets. That's what I did, and I was building a network of flyaway guys who were doing counterterrorism missions. So I could go over to the FBI and sit down with the FBI senior managers and say, okay, here's, here's how we would do it. I don't have any idea how you can do it, but at the very least I can tell you what the bad guys are doing out there uh, in their efforts to come here. So that was, you know, that was part of my work that I did uh, just before nine 11. JR could, could, uh, can yeah. you take, uh, I mean, this is a little bit of a segue, but maybe worthwhile. We want to take maybe just a moment to explain to people, because I think the public has this perception, largely because of the movies, that the CIA has a very uh, robust and intrusive presence domestically in the United States. Could you explain how that works in real life? I mean, the realities of like the limitations that you have as, you know, in these sort of stateside assignments? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, there is, I mean, like, as I said, the, the team that I was managing, they were, I mean, the only reason they were stateside is because we had great airports, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's, that's what we did. We flew out from stateside to someplace else. Uh, and that's great. I mean, it was, I mean, let's face it, as the counterintelligence environment has become progressively more difficult, it's really hard to do some of the, in fact, it's impossible to do some of the things that I did in Europe back in the early nineties. Can't do it because of what's called ubiquitous technical surveillance. Right. 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 And that had just, that had just started in the end of the nineties, but it was already, we knew that our work was going to be uh, limited unless we did something like start and finish from the, USA. Now, in the meantime, uh, our work with the FBI 
was exclusively, and I can't speak for what it's like now, but our work for the FBI was exclusively to help them understand the target set. We weren't allowed to talk to Americans at all. I mean, at all. Um, Unless uh, the only time I ever talked to an American was when I was with an FBI agent and we we would talk to an American. He'd show his creds and I'd show my creds and there was no sneaking around. Mm -hmm. And that was really rare because, quite honestly, the FBI, if they're building a case, they really don't want any complications. They want two special agents who are trained to do the right thing. Right. And we're not. I mean, CIA guys aren't trained to do. I mean, we're trained to, you know, to steal things and break things. I mean, basically. Right. That's that's our job abroad. Uh, and so, no, there is not a robust CIA presence in in CONUS, continental United States. Uh, and what it is, is is maintained in a structure that is through our FBI partners, the FBI by the mid-90s had what they call the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which would have been in each of their field offices. So there would have been sheriff's deputies and police departments and, and uh, you know, members of NCIS and members of OSI, the Air Force uh, Intelligence, uh, well, counterintelligence arm. And we were just there to, to provide context if they wanted to talk about something that was going on someplace else, we could use our electronic capability to pull down that data. And the data are important when you're building a case, no question. But a lot of times, at least in, you know, post 9-11 or pre 9-11, I didn't even know what the cases were. It was completely out of my, you know, they wouldn't talk about it. And rightly so, because, you know, if you want to put a guy in if you want to if you want to try a guy for some kind of crime, the last thing you want to do is have in the discovery process some data that says, oh, yeah, and there was this schmo from the CIA who was right, there. Right, right, right. I mean, and you're, that's you're, not going to work. And you're, you're living under a cover and an alias and so on. So it's not like you can take the stand under oath under your real name and, and offer testimony. Right. And worse, worse still, of course, is, is that. That, as you said in the, you know, the movie presentation of what agency officers, what what we're like is a, you know, is terrible. <laughs> it, I mean, no, it's just absolutely terrible in a, in a criminal, you know, in a criminal court. So we just didn't. Uh, the FBI, you know, was was more than happy to be to work with us, but work with us in a way that was consistent with what they needed to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Now, I won't, you know, I don't want to leave this subject without saying, and the FBI would help us if they had a case that went overseas, if they didn't have a, you know, an overseas footprint and they, and they thought that they could help us while we were working abroad, then absolutely our partners in the FBI did that too. Right. So it was a it was a mutually beneficial partnership, but it wasn't something that my the guys who were working for me were going to spend their time doing because they were busy hustling new cases, producing intelligence, doing all that stuff. Right. 
Now, in terms of like working with the FBI when it came to overseas counterterrorism, because obviously the CIA doesn't have any arrest authority and the FBI did if, you know, they can show it like uh, was it was it acceptable for, you know, the titles the, the, the CIA worked under for for you guys to run your intelligence operation and then bring the, in the CIA or I mean the FBI? Like, how was that evidence how was that like custody of evidence and how, how, when you built your case, were you sharing it with them? Were they allowed to use your information by us legal standards? No, the answer, the short answer is no. Uh, that actually, let me just say to both of you, you know, it's important for you to, to know, I'm going to reveal a secret to you. Right. Uh, so CIA case officer class one hour one, the answer to all questions is it depends. So just so you know. Right. Uh, and of course, that's because we're always working with humans and, and humans change over time. Right. But in the case of the FBI, basically what you would be looking at in a, in a case of bro- overseas, the intelligence network that you build then becomes something that the that might be shared both with the FBI and with a local uh, law enforcement entity that would be partnered with the FBI. So, so what's going on abroad is not about, I mean, I mean, and I was never involved in counter narcotics or any of that kind of stuff where we, you know, where bad guys get grabbed and brought to the United States. I was involved in counterterrorism stuff. And what would happen would be the case would be built uh, we'd be producing great intelligence and then anything that we could share with the FBI that the share that the FBI could share with the service mm-hmm. or we could share with the service for that matter. If the FBI didn't what didn't have a footprint in the country that we were in, then we would, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's. The, the the motto of the counterterrorism center, right? preempt, disrupt, defeat. Mm -hmm. So if you can disrupt the counter terrorist network in a third country long before they are any threat to the United States, absolutely, you do that, Mm -hmm. right? And if that means bringing in a liaison service, if it means partnering between a liaison service and the FBI and a CIA entity, good, great, actually. Uh, so I, I hope that sort of answers. I mean, yeah. it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Right? I mean, it is complicated and every case is different. That's why it depends. But uh, the vast majority of the stuff that we were doing on counterterrorism cases was producing the intelligence that then uh, could be passed to a liaison service, either directly with, you know, because I was to give you a feeling for this, I was declared to like, I think my last count was 22 different liaison services. Uh-huh. So, so, you know, if you could pass the intelligence, you would, uh, if you, if it made more sense to pass the intelligence through the FBI and the FBI was there, you would, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, it's, it's all, you know, it, it's one team, one fight in that sense. There's, there's no real downside to that. Yeah. Let's get into the, the run-up into uh, 9-11, JR, because you're already working counterterrorism, making these trips overseas. 
Um, kind of like, where were you at around that period of 9-11? Where was your head at? What, what, what were the cases you were working? Was bin Laden and al-Qaeda on your mind at that time? Um, what, what was kind of your world at that point? Yeah, well, okay. So it, just prior to 9-11, I had, I had made uh, a couple of trips out to Uzbekistan uh, for uh, something. In, I mean, it was associated with, but not focused on Osama bin Laden, right? Osama bin Laden, however, had become, uh, for for counterterrorism center, Osama bin Laden had been, you know, like target one. Everybody knew that. Uh, it, it was it was absolutely part of our mission set. Now, a lot of what I was doing wasn't necessarily, it was associated, we used to call it, right, uh, it was Islamic extremism, uh, and you know, it, and we, you know, we knew it was Al Qaeda, but a, a lot of the Al Qaeda network wasn't, in fact, calling itself Al Qaeda at the time. I mean, Bin Laden had this headquarters in Kandahar. Uh, they had, he had training camps in other parts of Afghanistan. We were certainly doing what we could to understand that and work against him. Uh, a lot of the kinds of things that I was doing in in Tashkent was was associated with rebuilding networks against Afghans or with with Afghans, so the Afghan resistance. Mm-hmm. And pe- people don't. I mean, people often ask me, like, how in the world could you put? You know, nine eleven happens. Uh, you know, two weeks later, we've got a team inside the Panjshir, and then you know. Another week later, you're flying out to Tashkent, and then two weeks after that, the team Alpha team goes in. How how can that possibly be? And the answer is because we were running cases all the way through the 90s. It wasn't that we expected 9/11. Right. It was what the CIA does is is you build a case, you run a case, you keep a case running. You get those folks used to seeing you with the understanding that sometimes the intelligence is good, sometimes it's bad, but but generally speaking, it's that sustained relationship over the years. I mean, okay. small joke. Uh, I, I gave this presentation to uh, an, a bunch. I've done this with a bunch of uh, special forces groups. And I was given the presentation uh, about this and I finished and I'm walking out to get a cup of coffee and, and the guys are walking out to get away from me. And I hear one of the younger special forces guys go like, who is that guy anyhow? And one of the older guys goes, man, you don't know that cat, man. Jr. is the forest gump of Afghanistan. (laughs) Now I'm hoping I'm really hoping in the larger scheme of things that that was because I had been to a lot of different kinds of stuff, right? I I met with Masood in the 90s. I had worked with a bunch of different guys in the resistance uh, in the 80s. And so the idea was that, you know, I just, you know, maybe it was because I was uh, uh, stubborn, uh, maybe it was because I, I, I like working with Afghans. Maybe it's because I had the language, but I kept doing it. And I wasn't the only one. I mean, by no means was I the only guy 
doing the same thing, who were just stubborn and kept working the Afghans, whether the United States government cared or not. And now the CIA cared. And our intelligence that we were producing at the time in the 90s, you know, was not it wasn't going to end up in the presidential daily brief. It just wasn't. What it was doing is, is it was building that understanding of the complex web inside Afghanistan. So, uh, yeah, we've been we focused on it for a long time. Did, did you during that time, um, especially after like the Russians left Afghanistan, when there was a period where was there a time when you had to sell Afghanistan to management and say, we still need a presence there? We still need to know what's going on? Well, what you do, you don't I mean, the, the answer is sort of kind of right. I mean, what you do is you sort out if the if. The seniors aren't interested in. It used to be a joke in the State Department, actually. Uh, one of the joke. This is in the in the seventies, and the joke was if you wanted to joke about somebody doing something that was absolutely of no interest to anybody, the argument that the line was. So, what's the political situation in Afghanistan? I mean, that was literally what State Department officers said when they were when they were trying to tell one of their their uh, junior officers. What you're talking about, nobody cares about. Right. <laughs> but but the good news about <laughs> Afghanistan, well, it was terrible news, but, the, but from a standpoint of the United States government, there was a very quick transition from, uh, you know, the, the problems associated with the civil war, right? Because that's what happened when the Soviets left. It was a civil war. But pretty quickly after that, people were interested in Afghanistan because it was the center of narco trafficking. Okay. And then shortly after it being the center of narco trafficking, which it stayed throughout the entire Taliban era, it also became uh, one of the centers of counterterrorism. So as a, as a case officer and a manager of case officers, we always wanted to make sure that we weren't just doing something because it was something we wanted to do. You right. don't, you don't commit espionage because it's a cool thing to do. It's just not you know, because you're putting a person at risk, whoever that is, that's producing that intelligence, regardless of where they are, they are, they are being put at risk. So you better have a reason behind it. The, you know, the truth is, is that Afghanistan had sufficient, reasons for all those years that you could always say, okay, yeah, I know it's, it's a country that has no economy and I know that it really doesn't, nobody really cares about it, but it's the primary producer of black tar opium. Oh, well, yeah, that's disruptive. (laughs) So yeah, we, we want to do something about that. Oh, by the way, it's where Ben Laden's headquarters is now. And he's training people long before we thought he was training people to attack America. He was training people to attack people all over the world, basically the entire West. So it was not a real problem. So when 9-11 happens, uh, was all these images of Mossad and uh, the Northern Alliance, bin Laden, was this what what immediately came to mind? And if you could, I think we talked about this with, uh, with Rick Prado a little bit, but... 
if you could talk to us a little bit about what it was like inside CTC and SAD that day. I, I can't tell you because I was on, on TDY oh, okay. in California. I was in California. Uh, I was driving. I was, I was actually driving with my wife going to uh, the FBI. And uh, I got a phone call on the mobile phone saying uh, from the regional boss saying, turn on the radio. And we're like, okay, <laughs> you know. Oh, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're probably, uh, she said, it doesn't matter. Turn on any radio station. So uh, that was, you know, as soon as 9-11 happened, I mean, we all, I mean, basically all of us who had been doing the counterterrorism gig knew it was Al-Qaeda and it was designed and, and perpetrated by bin Laden. Now, just because I mean, it's what I thought, right? I mean, in these in the CIA, you got to make a very significant distinction between what you think and what you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you know is based on intelligence that you have either collected or somebody else has collected. It might be human, it might be SIGINT, it might be something else. That's what you know. But all of us who had been working these targets for five years mm-hmm. knew, or at least we thought we 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 certainly thought. That it was Bin Laden. So it took me, uh, I mean, as we're driving, my, my wife turns to me and goes, you realize, you know, you're going to get on an airplane as soon as you can. They're going to call you back. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know that. It wasn't like it was the first TDY I disappeared on. But, uh, you know, for a few days, uh, I was able to close up some cases that, that had been, because you couldn't travel unless you drove someplace. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I traveled to a bunch of different FBI units that were working cases and tried to help them work through what they what they were doing because their world changed completely, of mm-hmm. course. And then as uh, soon as the, uh, as soon as you could fly, uh, I was called back to Washington. Uh, and that's when I, by that time, um, CTC Special Operations, CTCSO, had already been established. <clears throat> and uh, I had a little sad face because I thought that I was going to go out with the team that went to the Ponchier. I mean, I had helped set up the team that went to the Ponchier. I'd met Masood. I'd done all that stuff. And I get back, and uh, they're already gone. Mm-hmm. That's the Jawbreaker team? What's that? That is Jawbreaker? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was actually, uh, you know, officially titled the Northern Afghanistan Liaison Team. And Jawbreaker was NALT-3. So I'd been on NALT-1. I'd had some of my guys, my flyaway guys, on NALT-2. So I, I felt a little bit of, of ownership. Well, that was, you know, slapped out of my head pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was... I was terrified that I was going to end up, you know, I was back in the basement because that's where the empty space was. And I thought for sure I'm going to be, you know, doing uh, all the, all the kinds of stuff that, that headquarters, all the important stuff, right. Logistics, uh, the, the, the management, but still not the cool guy stuff. And let's face it, you know, we all given an opportunity, want to be cool guys. Um, so even at 46, which is how old I was at that point in time, uh, 
So, but as soon as they started the, uh, as soon as, you know, I got my in brief, they were like, oh, no, 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 don't you worry. Uh, we're putting together another, the first team that's going to go behind the lines. That's you. And uh, SAD has already got the team assembled. Alex was my deputy and he was already assembling the team. Justin was there. By the way, just a small sidebar to show how small the world is. Justin Sapp's dad was my instructor at the farm. So, <laughs> so you know, uh, uh, it, was, it is a small world. Uh, anyhow, the, the point is, is that uh, I start figuring out, okay, we're going to go. How are we going to get in? Uh, and uh, we can fast forward to th- that process. The only thing that's really fun or an interesting, really, the, the rest of it is just sort of administrative stories. But an interesting story is the day before I left. So I went out a day about actually a week early to Tashkent. Alex was assembling the team, assembling the weapons, assembling the commo, assembling all of that, which obviously wasn't going to go out commercial. So he was assembling the equipment and the, the team that was going to go out on an agency bird. I went out commercial to Tashkent, but the day before I went out, it's a Sunday. There's, you know, I mean, the, the team down in the basement that's managing C2CSO is working diligently, but it's basically an empty building. And in, I'm sitting in, at, in front of a picnic bench because, you know, it's a folding classic like plastic picnic bench because that's all there was in the basement. And I'm working through my notes and trying to figure out what we're going to do next when in comes uh, Director Tennant, Kofor Black, and uh, Hank Crumpton. Uh, and I, I had known, I'd known Hank a little bit. I'd known Kofor for, oh, I don't know at that point, 15 years or so. I mean, it's a small world. So Director Tennant comes in. He's a big, burly guy. You've probably seen pictures of him at the very least. And he walks over to, uh, you know, the, the map that's at the table, and he goes, come here, Jer. I want to tell you what I want you to do. I'm like, yes, sir. Uh, I, I think I know. He says, well, I want, I want to be clear. I want you to be clear about this. Yes, sir. So he takes, an, because he's a big burly guy, he takes a very large hand and puts it over all of northern Afghanistan. And he says, okay, JR, listen, here's the deal. Uh, these are the five provinces of Afghanistan that you're responsible for. I want you to destroy the Taliban and capture or kill any al-Qaeda you can find. Yes, sir. <laughs> just, okay, just wanted to be clear. And he got up and left. That was it. That was my, I mean... You know, in the army, we talk about commander's intent. Right, right. I mean, you you can't ask for better commander's intent, right? Than than that. Like, right. hey, in my opinion. Hey, Jr., can you fix Afghanistan for us? If you could have that done by the end of the week, that'd be great. Thanks, man. Good luck. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't only not all of Afghanistan, just five provinces. I mean, right. I didn't have eight guys. Right, right. right. So you know, uh, by the way, I mean, of course, at that point, I didn't know how I was going to get in. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do when I got in, but he didn't care about that part because he was certain that I was going to make it work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess if you, any of your, your, your listeners have read either Doug Stanton's book or Toby Harden's book, uh, we were able to do that. Now, sadly, we lost one of our guys while doing it, uh, but we were able to uh, accomplish that in in probably much shorter time. I mean, when, when Alex and I talked about this, you know, 
we just said, you know, we're going to be in for a year. I hope you're prepared for a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've told this to lots of people over time. This was a, you know, this, the, the success in the fall of 2001 is a function of three things, right? Uh, it's a function of a, a CIA network. It's a function of ODA capabilities. And it's a function of U.S. air power. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you might say, well, what about the locals? Absolutely, the locals are a centerpiece to this. But the locals had been fighting the Taliban for the better part of three years and making and having almost no success right. uh, along the way. So it was the addition of those three resources uh, working together uh, in collaboration, but not necessarily, you know, doing trying to do the same thing. Everybody was doing something different is how we were able to accomplish what got accomplished in I mean, we inserted on the 16th of October, uh, ODA 595, I think, came in on the, the night of the 1819, so two days later, two and a half days later. ODA 534 came in about two weeks later. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the ODC came in about another week after that, and... Uh, in the space of so, and we, we and we rolled into Mazar Sharif on the tenth of November. Yeah, could could you tell us about your team, about Alpha Team, kind of your planning process and insertion, and and kind of how that played out? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, like most agency stuff, it's just sort of informal. So I had I, I was in in uh, Tashkent for like a week, 10 days, well, about a week before, before Alex was able to come in. So I spent that time period doing a couple of different things. The first thing was to work with the, both the station there and with the Uzbek service to get in contact with, with uh, Abdul Rashid Dostam. Because he was the one guy that we had up in the north that, we, that was working behind the lines, that we knew. I mean, there were other guys working behind the lines, but he was the one that we knew. So I started getting into a conversation with him on satellite phone. And he's a character and a half. I mean, I'm most if you've read anything about him, you know that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, early on, he uh, so I, I, I decided because I knew that they had no encrypted comms, I wasn't going to give them my true name. So I decided I was my my uh, nom de guerre was going to be Baba John, which just means grandfather. So uh, we're talking back and forth, and he and he says, uh, you know, Baba John, I'm ready. I mean, we're ready for you, but we want to want you to know it's a little different here in Afghanistan. And I was like, yes, Commander, I I kind of know that. And he's like, well, no, let me just explain to you. So what we call an armored personnel carrier, you call a horse. And uh, you know, I was like, got it, right, check. Uh, but so so I'm. So I, I know I got a guy at the other end. Now I got to get in. So we have some resource, some agency resources there, but nothing that'll get us in deep enough to where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple of guys from uh, the uh, from the agency from SAD Air Branch, and I find uh, that 
the at the at the Tashkent airport, actually the military side of of the Tashkent airport, is a uh, an old Soviet uh, aircraft. Kind of looks it's a it's a a biplane sort of. It's a it's used as in in the old Soviet days. It's used as a crop duster and moving people around. And um, so it's it's an Antonov two. It's been around for a very long time. But I thought it was kind of cool because it looked like a Lysander. Now, for those of you who don't know what a Lysander is, it is the aircraft that virtually all of the SOE and the OSS guys who didn't go in by parachute into France went in by Lysander. It's a, it's a high-wing stole aircraft. And I thought, how cool would this be, right? I mean, this is like right out. I mean, we're already... CTCSO, right? So, I mean, which is what OSSSO, so is where they took the name from. So, okay, I go to the, the our, our crew, our air branch guys, and I go, what do you think? And they said, I don't know, we'll go check it out. They come back that afternoon, they said, we'll fly anything, but we cannot fly that. <laughs> that, air, that airplane does not, that, that's not safe. And that said a lot to me, because I'd flown a bunch of different air branch aircraft and a bunch of different aircraft air branch pilots who will fly anywhere and and do just about anything and i thought ooh i guess that didn't work out <laughs> so so uh, we're still puzzling over this and alex gets in and and we're doing all the other sort of team and isolation stuff that an sf team or a marsoc team would be doing right we're doing you know everybody's doing the, the uh, checking weapons, checking comms. Everybody's cross-checking. What are you going to be able to do? We're getting our our uh, our, our medic uh, Mark uh, is giving us sort of basic. This is your medic kit. This is my medic kit. This is what's going on. Uh, and Al, I, and I'm just puzzling with Alex. I'm like, we got to get in, but I we can't walk in. I mean, there's this river, and we can't drive in because we can't cross the bridge because the Taliban own the bridge. And he was like, well, let me get down to uh, Karshi Khanabad. You know, I've still got some contacts down there. I'll see what I can do. Remember now, Alex was a, was a retired senior sergeant major. I mean, he'd been a sergeant major in like multiple units in, uh, in the military. Okay, multiple special forces units multiple soft units so he had a couple of contacts so i said excellent you know we can i I got you know the the agency pilots will fly you down there that's not a problem so he goes down like the next day he's magically said hey we're good to go uh i've talked to uh john mulholland and uh we're uh you know we're good to go we got we we're we're gonna fly in on uh the the night stalkers are going to take us in. I'm like, sweet. So we get down to, we, then we all fly down to Tosh, to KKUZ and go into isolation. And I go over to the night stalkers and fold out my map. And I say, um, I take my little fat finger, like right out of ranger school point to the place. I, I, that's, that's where, that's where our, uh, our LZ is going to be. And they're like, okay. And they're like, how do you want to get there? I'm like, guys, you're the pilots. I have no idea 
I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to try to tell guys from task force 160 how to fly helicopters and where to go. All I want to do, I pointed once again, VLZ, that's where I want to go. And they're like, okay, any other thing, anything else? I said, well, I don't know if we're going to have a reception committee, but you're not taking us back, right? It, you're, this bird, your birds are going to be empty when you go home. Uh, we're getting off, and if there's no reception committee, we'll figure out what we're going to do at that point. And they looked at me clearly. They looked at me, and they're like, oh, boy, sure, this guy's <laughs> nuts. But you know what? It's a mission. It's a really good mission. We're doing it. So there was some weather issues like there always in a, is in Afghanistan. So we were actually supposed to go in first the night of the 13th and then the night of the 14th. Eventually, the weather cleared up and we ended up in the night of the 16th. And uh, so that's how we got. I mean, that's I, I have a whole story about getting in but i th that maybe just answers at least the front end of your question is there something else you wanted to talk about as far as kkuz first before before we move forward i i just want to ask you because you were like you were working afghanistan um in hindsight like in retrospect when people go through the records and, and i'm not talking about the the you know the hijackers here in the united states but was there ever any indication or ever any any intelligence that like looking backwards that that people could have predicted this was there any way to tie like Masood's death on the nine to what was going to happen or was it just a completely a closed loop at that time I, I mean i wasn't involved in the in the headquarters analysis of that so i mean the short answer is i don't know okay uh i it, the uh, I can say that certainly Bin Laden made no secret about the fact that he was going to attack Americans, right? Not necessarily America, but he had named us in 1998 as the main enemy, and of course he had attacked the embassies, right? right. The, so we've got the Nairobi and the Dar bombings, and then he attacks the USS Cole, right? Very clearly he was going to live up to his statement that he was going to attack Americans. Now, the the 9-11 side of the house, I, I don't know. I yeah. mean, I really don't know. I certainly don't have any, I mean, the, the stuff I was working with the FBI was more focused on possible other kinds of infiltration. Remember, the 9-11 hijackers are, are Arabs, and they were on legitimate visas, right? And and really not associated in any way, shape, or form that we could. I mean, we maybe in hindsight somebody's looked right. it up and figured it out, right? But certainly but not not from my perspective, right? And I like in and that's why I say like in hindsight, it's it's always easier to piece it. Like it seems obvious or whatever, but you know, I don't think that people understand sort of the the, the massive intelligence requirements that are placed on, you know, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and you just can't collect on every single individual in the world. I was just wondering if, if it had ever, if like, if, especially in Afghanistan at the time, like if we had access to those camps, if we had sources, um, or if they were just so insular, insular and isolated that 
that there was no way to sort of predict that. I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I really don't. Uh, the, the camps were the Ben Laden and his crew. I remember Ben Laden was the figurehead, but he had a very sophisticated crew of guys who understood counterintelligence. Why do they understand counterintelligence? Because they had been on the run. They'd had like half a dozen services trying to kill them for almost a dozen years. Right. Right. And so how they protected their intelligence, how they how they protected their operations is I, I just wasn't involved in it. So I, I'm, I'm not even going to try and yeah. answer that question. Well, I, I'm, the Afghans, like even, you know, during the war, like they they had fairly sophisticated counterintelligence because of their dealings with the Russians, whether they were trained by Russians or working against the Russians. Like they, they were not, you know, you think of Afghanistan as a non, you know, a, 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 not a very advanced country or not very technological, but they've been doing this for ages. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, this is part of the great game, right? Uh, and I'll give you, I'll just give you a, a one little tiny vignette that teaches you this kind of stuff. This goes back to the eighties. So I was, uh, I, I had a case that was that I had turned from being a, case about uh, about combat operations into a penetration of the Afghan Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. the, the, the DRA Ministry of Defense. And it was a complicated thing because we had to do, I mean, the communications network was, was unsophisticated. We were, we were getting uh, intelligence. I got, I was able to get a a document copy camera into Kabul. I was getting document film out of Kabul. And the very first time that I got one of those things, I uh, was sitting there with a guy who was managing, I mean, the Afghan who was managing this network. And uh, we were sitting drinking tea. And of course, we're eating, you know, the classic sort of pistachios and almonds and toot. raisins and all that stuff yeah. toot yeah. exactly yeah, mulberries yeah. and uh he said so how do you like the uh the 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 mix and i was like okay it's great he said is it salty or sweet and you know of course I, i'm thinking maybe this is a rapport thing right so i'm saying well i find it kind of salty and he said exactly and that's our signal that the material that was shipped out and smuggled out through three different smugglers was untouched because every one of the guys in the network had to include something and each of them knew what it was going to be. The last one was a mix of toot, uh, raisins, and salty nuts. And I was like, dang, you know, this is like right out of Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. You know, it was really right. So, yeah, they they understood. uh, They still understand how how to do this properly. But in the case of of the Al Qaeda guys, you know, Afghans weren't allowed into the Al Qaeda bases. Right. I mean, they, they at all. So that would have meant that we would have had to have recruited years before uh, an Arab who was being vetted for a mission that nobody knew about. 
eesh, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's asking a lot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just real quick for the viewers out there, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. I know they, they threw it up on the screen. If you guys are interested in getting the episodes of the team house without advertisements in it, uh, the link is right down below and it's in the description. If you guys want to check it out and we really appreciate you supporting the stream. So JR, t- tell us the story about the, about the infiltration then uh, behind enemy lines with one sixtieth. The insertion was, I mean, it was, I mean, first of all, uh, by now, we're like an hour in. You realize I am basically not a cool guy, okay? Now, Alex was a cool guy, and most of my team was filled with cool guys. I mean, real guys. I mean, guys who, uh, you know, who had done this. We had one who had, you know, a ranger who had been in Mogadishu. You know, I mean, we're talking about people who had seen the elephant is the way it's presented. Now, I'd had people shoot at me, is a different thing. I mean, it was an espionage thing as opposed to a cool guy thing. So uh, we load onto it's a, you know it's a classic sort of story of we walk out. It's the middle of the night, uh, and uh, we load onto our two helicopters. We have uh, so there's eight of us. So there's four and four, and uh, a couple of Pelican cases, and our rucksacks. And uh, so. The door closes. I, uh, John Mulholland uh, was was there. I think I think uh, Justin said, I knew that John pulled him aside. I didn't know what he said. You know, of course, you know, J- Justin told you, right, don't die is what, <laughs> uh, is what John said. But um, so w- we close the doors and, you know, the birds take off and, and head into the darkness. And I'm, I've got a headset just like this. Uh, sort of, except nicer. Uh, and so I'm doing, you know, I'm talking to the pilot in command uh, and the crew. I don't have the comms out. I can hear the comms out, but I actually can't. No, they, they're not going to let, you know, a guy like me talk out. So the first thing that happens is we're flying into the night and all of a sudden I'm listening. The guys are, you know, they're, they're cool guys and they're, and, and they've done a bazillion different kinds of ops. So they're, they're not, in the least bit bothered. And all of a sudden I realized they ain't talking much. And then I look out my, I'm on, I'm look, I'm sitting on, you know, looking out the left door and I realize we are about like, I don't know. It seemed like uh, within touching distance. Of course it wasn't. It was probably 40 feet from the tail of a C of an MC 130 Cause we were refueling to get into Afghanistan. And uh, so, you know, the guys are kind of nervous about this because it's in the dark. They're doing it with nods on. And uh, so and and we're right on the Afghan border. So success, right? Both birds uh, uh, refuel the the uh, MC-130 pulls away and some detached voice from on high says, congratulations, gentlemen, you've just conducted the first uh combat in air refueling for the regiment good luck and i thought this is like right out of a movie yeah but later i found out that we had like aircraft stacked up to the sky for this operation it was the only operation taking place that night right yeah so we had uh, a j stars we had the inner refueling we had three different c-130s we had we had fast movers um 
we had a lot of aircraft with us. So anyhow, as soon as that happens, the guys just drop down onto the deck and we cross over the Amu Darya and head into Afghanistan in the pitch dark. And, you know, it's, it's up and down because there's a lot of mountains there. So I'm looking at the watch and I'm, and I'm, I'm listening to the guys talk and they're the, the, the co-pilot is telling the pilot in command and the crew sort of the countdown as far as how long it's going to be before we hit the LC. And, uh, what I'm thinking about is uh, one thing, right? Just one thing, which is there are two door handles on a, a Blackhawk. One is the door handle that opens the door. The other one is the door handle that releases the door in an, in an accident. Now, I know, I mean, I, I hadn't worked with 160s, but I worked with a lot of pilots of all sorts. I realized None of them want to leave parts of their airplane behind when we pull away. So I'm, you know, I'm staring right at that, making sure I grab <laughs> the right handle. And uh, it's pitch black. I can't see it. I don't have my nods on. It's, it's really black. And, and, and the guys are counting it down. And they're like, okay, JR, we're one minute out. Uh, so, so I said to the guys, well, okay, I key the mic and i say okay guys like thanks for the ride uh we'll see you on the other side and i was just getting ready to take the headset off because that's the other thing you don't want to do it tells <laughs> right. people right up front that you're not a cool guy when you like get off the helicopter and you still have the headset on your head right, right. uh that's that's not going to work so okay fine uh just as i'm about to take the headset off i hear the the pilot in command say Hey, JR, I think we're here. And I look out over his shoulder, and out there uh, is what looks to be like a, a about two tennis courts lit, lit by about 50 60 watt light bulbs. Because uh, I had tried to talk Ghost Dom into you know, doing some sort of, of American. I mean, I had my Ranger handbook. I know how to set up an LC. <laughs> and I've been telling him how to you know, do all the stuff. And he was like, no, no, don't worry it'll be set up. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just going to have to take your word for it. And in fact, it was absolutely set up. So our bird lands, the, the second bird, of course, hovers over. So, so it's got the mini guns uh, looking at any kind of, cause we still don't know mm -hmm. good guys, bad guys mm -hmm. could be anybody mm -hmm. might be a mistake. We're in the right place for sure. I'm not worried about that. So, I open up the door. I grab the right handle. I've got the, got the headset off. Now, the agreement was I was going to get out of the helicopter. Everybody else was going to stay in the helicopter until we confirmed that we had a, a real reception committee and not Taliban. Because, I mean, I, I was confident that since right over my shoulder was a minigun, I was confident that it was that if there was problems, I wasn't going to have to worry about like shooting it out, but I didn't want everybody out of the helicopter while a shootout was taking place. Right. So I look out and what do I see in the dust? The helicopter course blades are still turning is like about 50 people who look like the sand people from star Wars. Right. They're dressed in 
these long, it's called chapons that just, it's the long jacket. They've got the, you know, the cummerbund, they got knives and they got guns and they got turbans. And, uh, I could just barely see their eyes and they start walking towards the helicopter. Now you guys know, and most of your audience probably knows when a black Hawk is on the ground hovering the front, the blade is only about six feet, uh, you know, forward. And, and it is really a bad thing to start a, an insertion by, you know, a bunch of guys that are supposed to be helping you getting killed. Mm -hmm. So I go running out there, uh, outside the blades and I lean over and I put up, you know, the classic sort of all everybody in the world knows stop, right? Hands out, stop. And I say, stop. Uh, of course, nobody can hear me because of the helicopter. And all of a sudden, I realize, you know, everybody in front of me is sort of bent over holding their hands out. They, they're they assuming that it's some sort of, you know, take me to your leader sort of greeting. Because <laughs> after all, we are aliens. And well, they're not shooting at me. So I turn around and I give Alex a thumbs up and he starts to unload the bird. And as soon as he starts to unload the bird, the guys start walking forward again. And I bend over and I put my hands out and yell stop. And they bend over and put their hands out and stop. We could have done this all night long, <laughs> but I decided that it was probably better for me to walk to the very front, grab the guy who looked like the leader. I grabbed him by the collar of his chapon. I took a knee. I pulled him down to take a knee. Everybody took a knee. And so the helicopters, you know, we offload both birds. And for, you know, anybody who's been in assertion, whether it's day or night, when the helicopters are gone, because your hearing has been affected mm -hmm. by this very loud noise of turbines, it seems like there's absolute silence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nothing. There's just yeah. absolute. It's like you're, you've got earplugs in or something. And uh, I look over at the guy that I've grabbed and he pulls down his uh, he's he's got his turban wrapped around his face. And uh, I've got my goggles and I pull my goggles up and he says, Baba John, welcome to Afghanistan. We must have tea. So uh, that was our uh, the beginning of the adventure. And in fact, we did have tea. Interestingly enough. And this just uh, people will say, you know, these guys are, you know, sophisticated and unsophisticated. There's big arguments about this. Dostum had decided he could have brought us in to an LZ on his turf. But instead, what he did is he brought us in on an LZ on the, his Shia allies turf mm -hmm. to allow the Shia to feel like they were to get the bragging rights for mm -hmm. the fact that they brought the Americans. in. Mm -hmm. I thought that was just pretty clever. Uh, so we ended up having tea at the, at a madrasa run by the, uh, the Shia leader, Mohakek. And then we loaded up into trucks and we went to Dostum's headquarters, which was deeper into or closer to the front lines, let's mm -hmm. say. And then eventually, of course, when we brought, uh, brought nine five nine five in we used an lz that was dostan's lz 
uh, at, right in front of what we, you know, where we were based out of, which we call the Alamo, which was, you know, it was very, it was like a little nativity scene. It was a, you know, we had a manger. It was a, a little stables that had been abandoned. And so there was room in the end for the Americans. <laughs> and so that's where we spent our next the first few days. And, and at this point, I assume you're getting the lay of the land, starting to assess. Everybody alive? Are you still there? What? Yeah, Sorry, I missed you. Uh, I, I was just asking. I mean, at this point, I assume that you were kind of getting the lay of the land and assessing the state of the Northern Alliance, the state of the Taliban, and how you're going to live up to Director Tennant's directive to, you know, take care of this broad Taliban problem here in northern Afghanistan. Well, you know, the great thing about Dostam is, is that, you know, he was trained. He's a military guy, right? He found it amusing that he he knew how he knew. I don't know. But he knew. He says, you know, Baba John, I know in the 80s you were trying to kill me. I think that's pretty amusing. Here we are now together. So, uh, you know, he he already had a plan. His his he he rolled out the first night. Right now, Dostam, as near as I could tell, never slept a whole night. If he ever slept more than an hour the whole time we were rolling, I I never saw it. Mm. But so the first night he rolls out this map that's the size of a, you know, a six a five by 10 carpet hand drawn of Afghanistan. And he says, look, it, here's the deal. If we take Mazar Sharif, Kabul will fall. It's just that simple. Now, I'm not going to argue with the guy. Right. I'm thinking, well, you know, historically, that's true. When 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 Mazar Sharif fell to Massoud's guys. It was after, you know, this was after the Soviets left. Uh, the DRA was done. And in fact, they were then able to roll in from uh, Jabal Siraj right into Kabul. So, yeah, I get it. Um, but he had a, you know, he, he said, so here's who we're working with. And uh, here's where they are. And here's where we are. And we need, uh, you know, it's the classic sort of Warren Zevon, right? Without the lawyers, we need guns and money. Right. Uh, and uh, so I'm like, well, I've brought money. And uh, he said, that's a good start, you know. And uh, shortly afterwards, we start delivering guns and bullets as well. 9-5 comes in. And as soon as 9-5 comes in, they're bringing in T-lamps. So they're bringing in lasers, which is, uh, you know, really good because trying to do airstrikes, well, the United States military at the time, now it changed over 20 years of war, but the United States military at the time were like, no, if you can't give me absolutely the grid coordinate down to, you know, a, a, a 10 meter square, we're just not going to drop any bombs. And we're like, well, you know, that's going to be kind of hard because we're sitting up in the mountains looking at these guys with binoculars. But once 9.5 and 3.4 came in with, t- with, uh, with soft lamps, it was, it was all over for the Taliban. But what was most interesting about this was that the Taliban in the north, I mean, there were, there were serious Taliban bad guys. I mean, they're, they're back in power in Kabul. But the vast majority of their foot soldiers were just that. They were foot soldiers. They were what, what the British would call levies. They were, they were either you know, kidnapped and told that they were going to fight or die, or they were given a small amount of money. And, you know, 16-year-old kid, 
you give him a Kalashnikov, you give him a Toyota Hilux, and you say you can terrorize anybody in the neighborhood as so long as you call yourself a Taliban. Generally speaking, he's going to say, that's cool. Right. But the thing about it is uh, hardly anybody, you know, truthfully, hardly everybody's more than willing to kill for jihad. But hardly anybody I ever met in Afghanistan wanted to die for jihad. Some did, but not very many. So what we were able to do with Dostam, Dostam was the one who had the best connections, uh, was he'd call the guys up on radios and say, hey, you know, you're on the wrong side of the history here. And I will, in fact, I, and I can pay you to be on the right side. And the first time he tried that, the guys would say, you know, something rude. I was listening to him. I was sitting right next to post them on the radio and they're saying something rude to him. And then he would turn to uh, Mark Nutcher, or whoever with nine five was there that day. And he'd say, see that that's right over there. That's where I am. Oh, that's the guy I'm talking to. And so they'd put the soft lamb laser designator on that and squish you know the guy would would go would would be done and then he'd call the guy next to him to the right or the left of that line and say hey Mohammed, you know i was just talking to abdul and i offered him a deal and he basically wasn't much interested but you know i'm hoping that you have seen what happened to abdul and you'll come to our side and pretty quick that's exactly what happened a lot of the Taliban levies were like, I'm not dying for these guys from Kandahar. I'm from around here. Right. And, uh, and if I can, if I can uh, be financially successful as well as be on the right side of history, I'm in. So that's basically what happened. And it was, you know, one after another after another, uh, slowly but surely, that, as I said, that mix – our work was to keep the resistance guys from fighting each other. Now, the Shia and Dostam were close. They'd always been close. But the Shia and Dostam weren't very close to the Tajiks, Muhammad Atta. So we had to constantly work on that. Meanwhile, we needed to send a team to Bamiyan so that another SF team could come into Bamiyan. So that was, we split the team and sent uh, Justin and Mike Spann and Mark in a Jeep into Bamiyan, out to Bamiyan. That's, you know, so they went out, they went out and disappeared for weeks because it was a long drive and they were doing exactly what we were doing. And then we realized that we were never going to get real success with Atta until he had his own agency team and his own uh, ODA. So we split the team again, and that became then Bravo team. And that was three guys. And then when ODA 534 came in, two more uh, uh, ground branch guys and a medic came in and, and helped set up that team. So, in the space of, by the end of the first two weeks, we were split all over the, the country, right? We were in all kinds of different directions 
three, no, no less than three at a time, but a lot of times two or three guys going to do something. Uh, as I said, we, we uh, you know, rolled into Mazar-Sharif. Mazar-Sharif fell on the 10th of November, and we rolled into Mazar. And uh, it was like, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, you, I mean, it, well, no pictures were taken, but it was kind of like the, the films you've seen of the liberation of Paris without the champagne. So, you know, men and women throwing rose petals at us, uh, women, you know, throwing their burkas underneath the jeep so that they would be driven forever destroyed uh cheering crowds i mean it was all it was liberation of paris except it was the liberation of mazar sharif it's incredible to think of i i mean and from there what was the the next step was on the kabul well for us the next step we still had a couple of provinces to take care of right uh so the first province, uh, the first set of provinces that we had to take care of were really not liberations, but just announcements. So Justin and I jumped in a Jeep with Dostam and we went to the three provinces to the West. The first one, of course, was, uh, was his old province, Jaustjan. Saripul was there and then uh, Maimana as well. So we did, did basically a grand tour saying, by the way, the reason the Taliban are gone is because they ain't coming back. They're they're done. And uh, Dostam was, of course, the big the big winner there. Uh, and it was his turf. So I wasn't surprised at that part. Uh, classic sort of, uh, you know, story, uh, again, small bit of humor. So we're driving along. We're blasting along on this highway that goes from Mazar Sharif to Shebaran. And uh you know, I'm still kind of nervous. I mean, there's still Taliban out there. And Justin's to my, you know, so I'm a lefty. So I'm on, uh, on the right seat looking out the window. Justin's on the left seat looking out the window behind Dostam and his driver. And all of a sudden, and we've got, you know, a truckload of guys in front of us and a truckload of guys behind us. And all of a sudden, the trucks absolutely screech to a halt and go into a herringbone, classic sort of military herringbone. All the guys in the pickup trucks jump out and disappear. And, and I'm like asking those I'm like, what's going on? He's like, Baba John, don't worry. I'm like, yeah, okay. But, you know, I'm kind of worried. He's like, no, don't worry. And all of a sudden, like in a very short amount of time, all these guys come running back into their trucks. They come to, the, to our truck and they start handing us melons. And Dostum goes, we always stop here. This is the the best <laughs> in the whole region. And I was like, okay, you know, I guess, you know, what what the hell? Um, but the last, of course, the, the last big uh, problem was uh, was well, there was two problems. There was there was uh, Samangan, which still had the Taliban in it, and Kunduz. So. Alex took a team to Samangan and started working on the distribution of resources, money, guns, bullets, and bringing in an ODA there. And Kunduz was supposed to be, well, you know, the problem was that Dostam and Atta had been convinced by Mullah Fazl, the head Taliban guy, that the Taliban wanted to surrender 
But if they didn't accept, if, the, if Dostamanata didn't accept the surrender, then they were going to have to fight house to house. And he said, neither one of you guys wants to be the butcher of Kunduz. Well, okay, so uh, none of us, not, none of us Americans were all that excited about any of this. But, you know, it's, it's exactly what Lawrence said, right? It's better for the locals to do what they do. You know, it's art. It's, it's, you know, for you to do it for them. Exactly. So we're like, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't, uh, we can't, we don't have an invasion force, right? (laughs) We've got ODA 595. We've got ODA 534 and the commanders that they're working with, they want to arrange, you know, go with the surrender. Well, you know, uh, both Doug Stanton and and uh, Toby's books talk in detail about the fact that it was a completely false surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was, it, I mean, from the standpoint, I mean, it was horrible. I lost a man. Afghans lost some of our closest allies. Dave almost was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were almost killed out in Kunduz because it was an ambush there too, though we had AC 130s on our side, so didn't work. You know, didn't work out so well for the Taliban. But the point is that whether you like it or not, it was an exceptionally sophisticated deception operation mm-hmm. because they had convinced the two major, al- you know, Afghan allies to to just drive right into a trap that was going to kill him. Right. <clears throat> and would have killed him if it hadn't been for AC 130s and the fact that we had, you know, we had the, uh, at that point, it was Max Bowers, who was the battalion commander for these guys, and uh, Sergeant Major Vigil, Mario Vigil, and their comms network with the authority to call in air power, like right away. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to me today. I mean, we still would have won the battle, but I'd be dead. No question in my mind about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what happened. I mean, you know, again, I would point your your uh, your listeners to reading either one of those books because they, they go into significant detail about about that. And it's it's a tough story to to, to read, and it's not a great story to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we talked to both Toby and Justin, I think that really came through about Mike Spann's death and just what a horrible uh, day that was. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I so uh, Scotty and I made it back for day two of that operation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Alex drove up from Samagon. So Alex and I went were in uh, the fort when Mark Mitchell, the night that Mark Mitchell won his distinguished service cross with the, with the team, it was a pretty spooky thing. The the Taliban, or it wasn't Taliban. It was the Al Qaeda guys were using all of the resources that were available. I had never really thought that you could direct fire, direct lay a 122 rocket, but I guarantee you, it was either that or they were using explosives to send telephone poles over my head. I'm not sure which it was. Either way, it was pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, AC-130s won out the day. And, and the Air Force 
saved our lives. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about like how that came about? Well, okay. So, so I, I get back to uh, Scotty and I came back from Kunduz. Uh, the guys who had been in the fort that day to include the SBS team mm-hmm. had, were all coming back, rolling in. They, they, well, they looked exactly like what they were. They had been buried alive because the JDAM had hit the fort and buried them alive. They dug their way out, um, and they were coming back trying to figure out what they were going to do. And uh, the, the part of the fortress that overlooked, that truly overlooked where the, where the, 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 uh, the Al-Qaeda guys were, was not where they had been. They didn't know quite how they were going to get in there. And uh, so Alex and I got in a Jeep uh, and drove over there. And we, you know, shouted from the, from the ramparts, hey, uh, we want to come up. And they said, come on up. So we climbed up the ramparts, went through a drainage hole, and came up to where the, our Afghan allies were. And I'd know, I mean, these are the same allies we've been with now for six weeks. So they were all like, hey, Baba John, good to see you, you know. Um, bullets flying everywhere. And uh, I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Uh, you know, if you can hold these guys in place tonight, we're going to bring in air power. And they were like, absolutely. We can hold these guys in, inside these walls. And they'd already seen what air power did. So, you know, it was, they were like, come on back. So then we, you know, climb over the walls, down through the drain pipe, up, you know, again, Jump in the jump in the jeep. Go back to uh, where everybody was set up, and uh, Mark and a combat controller and uh, one other guy. Uh, then about nine o'clock that night, we load in the jeep, back through. You know, same story, right? Up the walls, through the drain pipe, up where the walls, and in, and uh, tell the commander, okay, we're going to start bringing in. Uh, air power and he was like that's good because they found mortars and Mm -hmm. just about the time he got mortars out of his mouth rounds started landing on the parapet around us and uh we were like well that ain't good i've seen good before and that ain't it and uh i turned to alex and said you know alex i don't have my ranger tab to hide under I mean, if I did, I wouldn't be worried, but I don't have it with me. So he was like, yeah, I don't have my SF tab with me either. So, we, you know, we'll just we'll just uh, stick here. And, uh, you know, it's really up the mark at this point and and the combat controller to do the job. I mean, there's no sense in I mean, We couldn't see the bad guys. They could see us. Well, I mean, we could have gotten stood up on the parapet and shot our AKs. But like, why? So. Mark uh, called in the, uh, the AC-130s. They made uh, two runs. This is about the same time that the guys are shooting mortars at us and the 122s and just about anything they could find. They were doing direct lay on us. And finally, I remember Mark talking to the, to the, the aircraft and saying, guys, I know you have to rotate back through, right? You do, you're, you're doing your rotation because the air, the, all the guns are on the left side of the aircraft, but you just need to know you need to finish this this time. Cause 
the last couple of rounds, mortar rounds, are only landed about like 50 meters from us. They've mm-hmm. got, they're, they're walking the mortars in on us. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't hear what Mark, I mean, I heard what Mark said. I don't know what the Air Force guy said, but absolutely, they came roaring in. And for, for those of you who remember it, if you've ever seen the final scene from Apocalypse Now when the arc light comes in, Mm-hmm. and the entire sky turns orange. Well, I, to this day, I don't know what they hit. I think they hit the cheese charges, and then that kicked off all the other kind of mortar rounds and everything else. The entire the entire end of the fortress where the bad guys were just exploded into, into fire. So I turned to the Afghan uh, commander and said, uh, you know, I think our work here is done. We're going to go come back tomorrow, and I need to find Mike. We still, I mean, until, I mean, I wasn't willing to say that Mike was KIA until we, we knew he was KIA. Because mm-hmm. Mike had been such a, a power in so many different ways and so good at what he did. I thought even if he was wounded, and he could have easily crawled into a, a space and hidden, and then the guys would never have found him. So until we actually found Mike's remains, I mean, I was really committed to to hoping. Of course, you know, now we know from Dave's debrief and everything else that it didn't work out that way. But right. anyhow, we left. The next day the whole team now is crawling in because we think we're just going to enter, go into the fortress and, you know, do our post-blast analysis. I would climb into the fortress doing the same thing again. And the commander goes, I say, like, so why aren't you down in the area? He says, well, uh, it turns out that, and then just as he said, you know, that, uh, you know, two mortar rounds hit on the parapet again. He says, yep. They're still firing mortars at us. I'm like, oh, great. Well, it's daylight. Uh, and he said, yeah, we're going to bring in, we've got a, uh, we've got a T-62. We're going to bring in a tank. And uh, we've got troops all along the parapet. We're just going to start opening up on these guys. And, and uh, you know, it takes, it took uh, all that day. And they still ended up, you know, the guys, the Al Qaeda guys, retreated into the what's called the Pink House, which it was it was pink. And then, uh, what was really clever, I would never have thought of this, but the Afghans thought of it. They brought in a fire truck and started to flood the Pink House. And remember, this is November, late November. Uh, it's cold at night, and uh, by the next day. The guys were hypothermic. They were no longer combatants. Mm -hmm. And they were pulled out of the pink house and grabbed. And and then by that time, a good chunk of Dostam's team were there. Dostam was still in Kunduz dealing with the Afghans there. But they put him into trucks and they took him to Shepargan. And that's basically the last of the story, except when... The medic in 9-5 identified uh, John Walker Lynn. Then they brought him back to, uh, to actually to the Turkish school where we were headquartered. 
I made sure that my guys didn't uh, didn't talk to or do anything with Mike Spann or with uh, John Walker Lind for two reasons. One, I was afraid they would do him harm. Right. But more more importantly, uh, having worked with the FBI, I knew that if any of us were involved in this at all, the defense team would immediately say that, you know, we were somehow perfidious. And so we didn't do anything. Uh, Admiral Calland understood it as well because he'd been, you know, SEAL Team 6 commander. So he had had a lot of work in this weird world of counterterrorism and criminal enterprises and all that. Mm -hmm, And so he just put guards on the room that that, uh, John Walker Lind was there until they could fly in from, uh, at that point, they flew him in from Tashkent, some Army CID guys. And then the Army CID guys matched up. They also had some NCIS guys there, and they put them on a bird and took them out of there. And that was that was the last I saw of them. Jr. The uh, of- you know uh, the the John Walker Lind, the so called American Taliban. Amazingly, he's out of prison now. Uh, and you writing. Know, he pen- yeah, he's taken up some writing, yeah. a little bit of writing, yeah. and uh, has accused the CIA and the Army of committing war crimes out there. And uh, I'm just curious what you think of of John Walker's account of of how that went down out there that those few days. You know, I, I honestly I haven't followed any of that. I mean, I I'm sorry, I I can't I can't stomach the guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, the only thing that I know about that guy is after the fact, I talked to some of the FBI guys who did the initial interview with him, and they showed me some pictures, and they said they showed me the pictures of when he was first, you know, first brought out and interviewed, and he. I think you've seen some of those pictures because they've become part of the, of the story. But anyhow, like he, his, half of his face looks really dirty and the other half looks sort of dirty. And the FBI uh, guys I talked to said, well, that's because that's what happens when you, you know, have a good stock weld on an AK 47 and all that carbon from those, from those rounds start start you know comes out because ak-47s for everybody who who's ever fired one you know they're sort of i mean they're designed to be loose so they can be so that they can be shot in any environment that's right. why they are so popular all over the world but uh it was you know carbon from the so i have not followed john walker Lin- i mean i'm sorry i can't i can't bring myself to do it i'm an old guy i'm a geezer uh he he is a traitor. Uh, the end. You know, I mean, I'm not going to judge anything else about him. Or what he wants to talk about now is between him and he's a he's a mom. So it's between him and his God. You know, really. Um. And <laughs> no, fair yeah. fair enough, Jr. Uh, but uh, on a, on a sadder note, um. How, how how did you guys get a, a resolution on on Mike Span and, and evacuate uh, his remains? Well, we we went in. I mean, after the after the the guys had been pushed into the pink house, but before they were pulled out, we walked the the, the Afghans. Of course, you know, see a good chunk of the of the folks who were who were actually the fighters, our fighters on the ramparts were Shia. 
right? They were because it was the Shia that had been had had. Well, Mazar Sharif is, was a Shia town before the Taliban took over. So they were always the guys and they knew Mike very, very well. Mike had been Mike and Justin and Mark had been our focal points with the with the Shia resistance and then with the Shia when we started to rebuild Mazar Sharif. So they went in on their own, found him. Uh, and brought him out in a stretcher. And so we didn't have to go searching for him. They had already brought him right out uh, to the entrance of where the, the big gunfight had taken place. And uh, then we uh, recovered Mike. Uh, we had a, uh, you know, a classic American uh, uh, bag to put him in, brought his remains to the... Uh, brought his remains to the, the Turkish school, put him in a, a, a space where we could do a quiet time with him. And then that night, half the team uh, loaded up with Mike's remains, loaded up into a C, CH-47 and uh, flew back to KKUZ. Alex uh, was on that. You know, why half the team? Well, you know, we had not been, uh, we had, you know, we hadn't been relieved. We were still doing stuff across the board. So it was half the team needed to go because uh, half, the, I mean, Mike was buried, buried before I even got back to CONUS. Mm-hmm. But uh, we needed uh, to, half the team needed to stay to continue to work the stuff that we were doing, which mm-hmm. was building something resembling a legitimate, not government exactly, but at least a legitimate order and also hunting down the last of the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda guys who were now on the run in Samangan. Jared, uh, how, when you talk about uh, like building, not the legitimate government, maybe a legitimate coalition or whatever, how tough was that? Because even though these warlords like Dostum and, and, and Otto, that they were fighting the Taliban, they they were all there wasn't like a national identity for them. They were also fighting for themselves and would just as easily turn on each other if they thought they could get away with it. How was that for you trying to orchestrate that or manage manage those relationships? It was something that, of course, you know, this goes back to my experience in the 80s. Right. I learned a long time ago that there comes a point in time where you can't, you can, you need to be polite, but you need to draw a line in the sand. Mm. And I made it pretty clear to the guys early on, actually. Uh, well, before we had entered Mazari Sharif, let's just say uh, that if they didn't cooperate, we were all going home. Mm-hmm. There'd be no more money, no more guns, no more ODAs, no more anything. Mm-hmm. And then, so, you know, and if that was what they were, they, they were committed to do, we weren't going to get in the way of it, but we certainly weren't going to help them. Mm-hmm. And so they took it to heart. I mean, they didn't have to, they, I, I get, I mean, I don't know if I was uh, blunt or if I was, you know, just looked sincere or what, but it was like one-on-one with these guys uh, 
I've had guys in the past when I was doing this, I mean, say, you know, really with just like, you're surrounded by bad guys and you're saying this like, it's our job. It's right. what we do. Right. Uh, it's the leverage you have too. Yeah. Right. Well, it is. And, and it's not like they're going to kill me because that would also, you know, end end the relationship. So they could grumble about it, but they had <laughs> seen what, what was, what was successful now, you know, is, and what we said right up front was, look at once we're once the Taliban, we're only here to get these guys out of here. It's really up to you to figure out what you're going to do next. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my own I mean, I, I've only done Afghanistan, uh, Afghans since 1986. So I'm not going to pretend that I am like a, a real, you know, cultural expert, like, you know, from Harvard or Yale, because I'm just a kid who, you know, blue collar kid who just lived with these guys for years, but there is no such thing as an Afghan. Right. 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 There, there's, there's absolutely no such thing as an Afghan. The only Afghan I ever met was Amrullah Saleh, uh, who was, you know, the, the last vice president of Kabul. But before that, he was the head of the national defense, you know, the, the uh, national directorate of security. And before that, he was one of of Masood's guys. I mean, he was actually a very close to Masood and was one of the guys that traveled with Masood when Masood was going back and forth between the Panjshir and Dushanbe to meet folks. He's the only Afghan I ever met who was an Afghan. All the rest of them, all of the rest of them are Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara, Pushtuns. And there's two different, I mean... And, the, you know, uh, people say Pushtuns, but, you know, the truth is that the Pushtuns of, let's say, Jalalabad can barely understand what the Pushtuns in Kandahar say. Mm-hmm. And neither one of them can understand what the, what the Pushtuns from Nimruz say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not a country. Uh, we, you know, National Geographic's done the maps, you know, they had a flag. And so by definition, Americans think that they're a country. But, you know, they are... Neither a nation, oh, they were a state, certainly, but they were not a nation state. Right. And uh, the folks in the north, north, I mean, remember, when the winter comes, you can't drive from Kabul to Mazari Sharif, right? The roads are closed. There's no way to get through the Hindu Kush. Even today, you have to fly. So what we had to do was convince all these guys that regardless of what they thought of each other mm-hmm. and they didn't like each other. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Right. Uh, that, that they needed to collaborate, cooperate if they wanted their country back. And they did. I mean, I don't just because they grumbled doesn't mean that they didn't do their job. They did their job in ways that were, you know, exactly what you could have asked for. Right. What was the next phase uh, for Alpha Team after that whole incident, after Mike Spann's death and resolving the situation at the prison? I mean, as you said, you were continuing to do things. The mission wasn't over. So what what was the next step? Well, the next step was to, you know, to build a, a to work with all three of our Afghan allies to make sure that there weren't Taliban, uh, you know, uh, the I guess the only term I could think of is is a term from, you know, from World War II. We wanted to make sure there were no werewolves out there, right? The not, right everybody right, right. was worried 
in 45 that there were Nazi werewolves out right. there hiding out, just waiting to come right. out. So we did that. We, uh, we were involved uh, with the ODA that was down in Samangan working with the Ismailis, totally different culture as well. Uh, and then, uh, that, you know, for me, my job towards the end was to be sort of uh, you know, the intelligence diplomat. I worked a lot with Admiral Calland as we built airfields and we worked with the commanders trying, or the, you know, the three leaders to try and make sure that they continue to collaborate and cooperate, dividing up the city, how you do police work. You know, I mean, I don't mean like a police force, but, you know, making sure that there aren't checkpoints that are hostile to each other across the town, all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, our allies started to roll in. And uh, so, I mean, it, it, we had lots of allies already. I mean, the Brits were our shoulder to shoulder with us. But I mean, the, the other allies, the Jordanians, special forces came in, the French uh, aviation folks started to come in. Eventually, of course, Mazar Sharif was, was run by a German unit. Uh, so that at the very end, the, the job was just there were, there were five of us left. And uh, the five of us carved up every day, a little piece here, a little piece there trying to do all of those things until we were relieved in place in the mid in mid December and uh, you know did the did the handshakes with our our the relief, the new team and introduced them to all the other the you know the guys that we've been working with all this time and then we boarded a uh, an agency uh, twin otter and left Kabul or left Mazar Sharif and headed back to KKUZ. And you had a, a few more years left at the CIA before retiring in 2007. Uh, I believe you finished as the deputy of operations of CTC. No, uh, well, I mean, I, I did. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, that wasn't my last trip to Kabul, right? Okay. I mean, or Afghanistan. I made like five different trips TY okay. for lots of different kinds of projects. Uh, over time as we worked with the station. Now, by that time, the station set up. It's a big station, but there were certain things, cooperation, collaboration, some other stuff, there's some training that I was involved with. Um, After, uh, in in 2004, I was uh, pulled back to headquarters after 17 years, kicking and screaming, but Orders are orders. And I went back into the basement. Of course, it only goes, you know, I was given, I was given an office in the basement to do some other stuff um, that was nothing to do with Afghanistan. And then I ended up as a, uh, the chief of ops for a geographic division for about six months. And then I got promoted, shocked everybody, myself included, <laughs> and uh, got grabbed up to go to CTC. CGC is a big place, right? I mean, there were, at that point in time, there's over not quite 4,000 people in the CTC mix. Now, that doesn't mean that there were 4,000 people working in headquarters. There are 4,000 people doing the CTC mission. Are you still there? Yeah. Did we lose you? You know, no. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, anyhow, the the operations office. So, I was was the one of the two deputy chiefs of operations 
And then we had a chief of operations and he had a deputy. So I was partnered with Doug Wise. So Doug and I uh, split and you've had Doug on, on, on the, uh, on, on the, on the podcast. He's uh, coming back in a few weeks. Uh, we got him scheduled Great. for the 22nd. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, anyhow, he and I divided up the day-to-day management of CTC in half. So uh, I ended up with a, you know, a bunch of different parts of CTC and then the, the, uh, the CTC director, wanted to have a uh, a a psyops program a a robust psyops program going after countering violent extremism uh so i wanted to call it the you know political warfare department no that wasn't going to work it that sounded too political uh so we ended up uh calling it uh, the strategic communications department and i was listed just so I could go over to state and not be laughed out of the building, they listed me as a, a a deputy director of CTC for strategic communications. Okay. So I spent the tail end of the last uh, 18 months of my career uh, managing teams that were all over the world. Is again, kind of, uh, you know, the same sort of story over and over again that were working on what is, what would have been called in the old OSS days, black propaganda. And, you know, and black propaganda is designed to undermine the morale of the bad guys, as opposed to uh, psyops or strategic communications that the military and the state department were doing, which was to bring guys onto our side, right. To convince people on our side. And also that the bad guys don't know where the information is coming from, as opposed to, like, say, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, where it's very clearly coming from the United States. What you guys are doing is right. concealed. And what we're doing, I mean, what basically what we're doing is telling them, in a sense, a modified truth, which is your leaders are making themselves rich while you guys are Dying. being asked to be martyrs. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, which is all true. Yeah, that's not really gotta, a modified truth. That's kind of the truth. That is the truth, this. but it yeah. has to come from some place that doesn't say United States of America. That doesn't right. have CIA all over it. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so we did we did a variety of different, very creative things. I I take, I mean, no credit for this other than getting money to make it happen. I mean, the I had a team of exceptionally smart folks. And then, because I knew I was going to leave soon, I grabbed Alex uh, to take over for me. So we we ended up at the end of, I ended up at the end of my career with Alex as my deputy again, which was great. And then he took over my job when I left. That's pretty cool. So retired in 2007. And tell us a little bit about what your life has been like post-retirement. Um, I'm sure your, your wife is happy to have you at home a little more often um, and, and getting into writing, you're a pretty prolific like a very author. prolific writer. Yeah. Well, let's start with, you know, I, uh, this, this trade, uh, this blend of intelligence and special operations, it's, it's very addictive and it's very hard to just go cold Turkey. Mm. So for years, uh, I worked very hard with the army and the special operations community 
to try and do some training for them, cultural training. I'm an anthropologist by training. So cultural training on how to work with the locals. I mean, obviously, Rob and Sage, they teach how to work with the locals. But I'm like down in the tactical. This is how I worked with the locals, Mm -hmm. as well as how to work with the CIA, because uh, working with the CIA is a challenge because it's another culture entirely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and, you know, it might seem easy when you're in a forward operating base and you've got a base chief and maybe one. It's another thing entirely when you're going to fly into a station, uh, an established station, and you're going to be talking to people who are interested in conventional intelligence operations because that's their job. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time working on that and still do a little bit of that. Uh, And then about five years ago, I started writing. And uh, it seems more prolific than it is because Mike Four had to uh, go through two years with the censors. Oh, really? And then, and then uh, it's the sequel, Friend or Foe, was twenty-eight months with the se- with the censors. And then eventually, what happens is, uh, I guess I just wore them down, or they just figured out I'm not going to quit. And I also cracked that, you know, got the code. Right. I got the code. I, I understand how to write to make sure that the censors legitimately. I mean, I'm, I signed a, a document in 1985. Right, so right. they could they could watch everything I wrote forever. Uh, so it isn't like I don't understand that it's the rules. I get it. But it, it seems like if you look at like, you know, like like yeah. nine books since 2019. Well, no. Actually, I started writing Mike Four in 2014. Okay. Finished it, finished it in 15, and then had to find, get through the censors. Right. And then after the censors, had to go through and find a publisher. So meanwhile, while I'm doing all that, I'm still writing. So it looks like I'm, I'm creating these things. Now, those people who have read it will say it's sort of slapdash anyhow. But I mean, the point <laughs> is that uh, the it is the the publication date doesn't reflect what happens. That makes sense. Uh, so and, some, I, I was just going to say for our audience who doesn't know, because we've had people on who have written autobiographies and whatnot, and we've talked about the pre-publication review board at the CIA that has to review their stuff and make sure it's not classified. But you might not know in the audience that even if you write fiction, they have to go through it and check it to make sure that you haven't spilled any secrets in your fiction. Correct. Correct. And, you know, and fair enough. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's an entire, you know, there's an entire part of the CIA that does open source intelligence. And it, you know, for years and years and years, the KGB was doing open source intelligence on all of their officers who were in North America. That's what they were doing. So, yeah, the, the pre-publication is a fair requirement. Uh, I, I think what happened to me was that I hit it at a time, just about the time that a bunch of 
very senior people Mm -hmm. legitimately wanted to write essays and articles and books about their careers. Whereas, so what would happen would be, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is my fiction kept getting back down to the bottom of the pile. Because let's face it, if a former director wants to write an editorial that's going to the New York Times... Yeah, totally. That's a whole lot more important than me writing a, about a fictional character who is a special operator, right? I mean, it's just totally different. So, Jared, please, I'm I'm going to talk about your other series, uh, uh, and I'll ask you questions about it. But please tell us, uh, we haven't had a chance to read this one, so please tell us about Mike Four. It's it's there are six books in the series. Set. Seven now, and it's Seven. about a, another one just came out, and it's about a family uh, whose history in special operations intelligence goes back to World War II. Correct. Correct. So the basic story is Mike Four is the call sign for a female special operator who is on a surveillance detachment. Okay, uh, we'll leave it at that for those of, for folks who know what we're talking about. They know. But that's what the that's what the policy review board uh, wanted it to be called. So fair, fair enough. So she's in a surveillance detachment, very successful, and but uh, very aggressive. Now you might say, why a female character? Well, partly because I met a ton of female operators and a ton of agency females, and you know, you'd look around in the fiction, try and find some. Mm-hmm. In, in fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, she's a she is uh, this the daughter of a of a tandem couple, and she's the granddaughter of an OSS commando. So, uh, who also then becomes a CIA officer, very senior, and and ends his career CIA officer. She doesn't want to be in the family business, uh, so she, you know, goes through selection and ends up in this surveillance detachment. In Jalalabad, she ends up walking into an ambush and it becomes a what is known in the wounded warrior world as BTK, a below the knee amputee. And uh, just like many BTKs uh, from Iraq or Afghanistan, the army, after she is healed as much as a BTK can be healed, says to her, okay, here's the deal. You can either get 100% disability and start a new life. You know, go back to college, go do something else. Or you can uh, stay in the fight as an intelligence officer. And we're going to send you to the farm and you're going to learn, you know, CIA tradecraft. And you're going to be one of our, that is the special operations community, intelligence officers. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Mike Forrest spent her whole life trying to dodge the family business, but given a choice between staying in the fight or not staying in the fight, she chooses to stay in the fight. And she ends up working uh, in a a team that is a a special operations intelligence, human intelligence, counterterrorism collection team. Now, people say, why a BTK? One of the training programs I was in uh, after I retired was down at Fort Huachuca, and I was doing, uh, you know, my cultural stuff. 
But we were doing it out. This was back in the day when Iraq and Afghanistan, the guys who were doing intelligence had to be able to get out into the literally out into the field. Right. So I was working uh, students one after another and evaluating them after the fact. It's a five day, six day program. And, uh, you know, because I was an outsider at the end of that program, I would give them a one on one. Hey, this worked well for you. This didn't work so well. And like, you know, I, I learned through all the leadership training I've ever given and ever taken that, you know, it's it's really good to unkey the mic and listen for a while. Now, those of you who have been listening to me for now two hours are wondering about that. But nevertheless, uh, so I went to one of these guys and I said, so uh, you have anything you want to say? Because he had done very well, and I didn't expect him to say anything more than thank you and go. He's like, man, this is tough. This was really hard. And I was like, dude, it's supposed to be hard. That's the whole point. And that's when he rolled up his pants leg and showed me that he was a BTK. Uh-huh. I had I had walked this guy all over uh, southern New Mexico. <laughs> and uh, he had never said anything and had done his job on his own, all alone, face to face with me, giving him a hard time. And it was at that point I realized that is one, you know, this in the 82nd, when you say that that guy's as hard as woodpecker lips. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was one hard character. Well, years later, when I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to move this character from this side of the house to that side of the house, it only seemed fair to make sure that there was a person there who was a BTK who said right up front, I'm not a victim. Mm -hmm. I am a person who is still in the fight and I will remain in the fight until I retire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the special operations community, the army as a whole is filled with people right now who are gravely who were gravely injured in Iraq or Afghanistan and are still in the fight. And God bless them for that, because most folks don't even know that they're that they are wounded warriors because they don't tell anybody. They don't ask for any any pity. They just want to do their job. Mm-hmm. So that's that's Mike for goes through a bunch of different stuff. There's seven in the series. Six of them are about Mike four. And one of them is entirely focused on a prequel about her grandfather, because through the series, you find out that there's a vendetta between a Russian family of spies and an American family of spies. And book four reveals, actually book three reveals that, the, the origins of that vendetta. So guys, so check out if you, I mean, check out the Mike Forrest series. I'm going to talk about a school for the great game, which to me is a mix of Kipling, um, Hopkirk, uh, the great game. Uh, um, uh, I, it's got, it's steampunk. Like it, it says it's a steampunk Raj novel. But it, it's also like a Philip K. Dick, like alternate alternative history or alternate history 
it, it's it's a fascinating book that draws on real history of the world. It's basically the great game, but more in a steampunk environment where it's a little bit of Ian Fleming, um, where mysticism and mentalism actually exist. I mean, it's a fascinating book. Where did this come from? Because the, there's two of okay. these. There's actually, I'm working on the third one. We're, we're in world. You know, I, I, on a regular basis, you know, my wife's an artist and all of the illustrations in that book are oh, wow. from her. Oh, cool. So, uh, so, uh, but you know, I'll, I'll regularly say to her recently, I'm saying like, I'm going back to my office and back to 1915 because, uh, Book three is set in World War One. So what I'd like to tell people about this series is if you can imagine Rudyard Kipling's Kim meeting Stanley's Doctor Strange. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the story. Uh, but there's Ian Fleming. There's there's Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, well, yeah. Well, well, here's the here's the deal. I mean, when in, in the 80s, when I was in, Af- you know, doing the Afghan stuff. One of the things that I really believe in is if you're going to do this trade, you have to understand history, whatever culture you're working against, you have to understand history. So the good news is when the Brits left the subcontinent, they left behind the print plates for all of their old books. And so you could buy in books, you still can buy in bookstores, memoirs of, you know, 20 years on the Khyber, this and that and the other thing. Well, a lot of those books include these statements that, you know, the guy dyes his skin with walnut oil and puts on the local garb and disappears in the crowd. Well, listen. Bullshit. Trust me. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I speak the language pretty darn good. Uh, I grew a beard that looked like ZZ Top. But let me just tell you, I didn't fool any locals. Right. Right except maybe at a distance where if they were looking to shoot somebody, they, they might not shoot me first. They'd shoot me eventually, but they right. weren't going to shoot me first. <laughs> so, okay, fine. So, but I thought to myself, okay, well, I know it's not true, but what if it was true? Right. Well, if it was true, somebody would have to teach these guys to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I created the school, Right where they were being taught how to disappear into the crowd, how to run uh, their operations against uh, the Russians. Now, by the second book, the Russians and the Brits are allies, and they're running their operations against the Germans, Mm -hmm. as they are in this new book, too. But but it's a a fun book. It, It takes a lot longer to write because I put real people into the story and those real people kind of have to be where I say they are. Right. Because most folks are going to wonder about who are these people. And in today's world of, of Google and Wikipedia, people are going to really quick know if I was completely off base. Right. So I do, I, I do a fair bit of research, but of course, as I said, I bought a whole bunch of books from that time period and brought them back to the States. My office has got probably 500 books of background stuff that I can use. It just means I have to be a student again. That's all. Well, what's so fascinating about it is it like in a lot of like 
in some ways, if you took out the fictional elements, the characters, the, you know, the, uh, that, you know, the, the steampunk, you know, the, the, you know, the magic or whatever, it's a history book. Like there, there's so much rich history in it about Afghanistan, about India. Like there are so many things and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, you're talking about the past. Oh yeah. I mean, when I'm talking about the Waziris and the Masuds, I right. mean, it's absolutely the Waziris and the Masuds were regularly causing trouble right. up on the, and the Fatah. Well, you know, and, and the, the thing about the, the mysticism is interesting. I got that from, there was a, uh, an adventurer, a Belgian adventurer that went up into Tibet in the thirties. Oh yeah. And he came and he, and he came back and wrote this book about all those things that I'm talking about, right? All the, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, being able to jump long distances and right. being the able telepathy, to, yeah. And telepathy and all that stuff. Now, uh, another, you know, short, you know, reality story, I have a friend who uh, I worked with for years and years, you know, special forces guy was also an Olympic kayaker. And years later, he was hired by National Geographic to be a scout for them. They were going to sport a sponsor, a team that was going to try and, and, and whitewater raft. So rafting on the headwaters of the Ganges, all the way from Nepal down to Calcutta. Well, you know, my friend Wick, he, uh, and he's a writer as well. He's, he's now, of course, we're all geezers, so we can't be adventurers anymore. We have to write. But he, he was uh, doing this, and he was, you know, of course, he doesn't speak Nepali, uh, and he doesn't speak Hindi. So, so what he did was, on his first leg of the, of the Whitewater, he hired a young man who was from the University of Kathmandu, spoke good English, uh, and was a, a comparative religion guy, which in University of Kathmandu meant he was uh, comparing red hat, white hat uh, Buddhism. But anyhow, Wick's, you know, spending his time with this guy. And at, at one point, he says after some weeks and he's made friends with the guy, look, at he says, I don't want to insult you, but I've been reading for years about the fact that, you know, Tibetan monks could, could, you know, astral project from mm -hmm. one monastery to another monastery and, you know, all that stuff. I've read this book about this guy who says he's seen all this stuff, like really. <laughs> and the young man said, you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there's, you got to separate facts and fiction, right? I mean, it's our religion is our religion and we believe these things. And some of these things he says personally, and then he, he, you know, raises his hand. He says, I've never seen a monk levitate any more than up the height of my shoulder. <laughs> and, and Wick goes, all right, then uh, <laughs> that answers the question, you know? So, so I just put that stuff in because it's fun. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it gives me an opportunity to get some of the characters out of jams. Sure. That would, they would otherwise, you know, and and partly it's true that if you are uh, able to, I mean, disappearing in the crowd is one thing, but there's plenty of stories of uh, modern stories about uh, snipers disappearing into ground that nobody would expect they could disappear to. A right. Trash heap and that's because a pile of bricks. 
What? Well, I mean, it's it's because they understand how the adversary's mind works. Mm-hmm. So if you look like something that the adversary expects to see, then you are you're not invisible in the sense of Dr. Strange invisible, but you are invisible to your adversary because right. they don't see you. Right. But, and uh, it's also like it's just a fun jump, element to the story. Let's uh, jump into the user questions here. Let's try to get through these yeah. uh, for JR. Uh, okay, uh, Jerry, uh, thank you very much. Uh, do you have knowledge about Operation Samoom back in 1990 in Iraq? No. I mean, I, I, I'm not a – I'm a Central Asian guy, so I'm sorry. I can't, I can't speak on Iraq at all. My, I made two trips to Iraq. And neither one of them uh, were in that time period. I mean, I made two trips to Iraq because I had some of my uh, black propaganda team there. So I I was in Baghdad and Ramadi uh, a couple of times. But no, sorry. I'm not trying to dodge it. I just don't know anything about it. And even if you were trying to dodge it, it's totally cool. We get it. Uh, John Pierre, but we know you're not. John Pierre, thank you very much. Keeping people safe, last year it was reported that the agents made a call out on the loss of too many informants. Is the is the cause the tougher environments or the lack of talented handlers? And I'm going to add on to this. Or is there – do you think that there are other issues? Well, uh, first of all, right, uh, the, the whole idea of what's called UTS, right, ubiquitous technical surveillance, makes it exceptionally hard to do the old kind of tradecraft I did, mm-hmm. right? Uh, then you add to that, how are you going to communicate with these folks if you can't see them face-to-face? Well, then you then you enter another piece of... Now you're into another world where cyber operations and cybersecurity and everything else. So I, I think that what happens is we go through... It's a, it is... And I don't want to make light of it because it's people's deaths, but it is a competition just like it's a competition between stealth aircraft and air defense. You're constantly competing with your adversary who's trying to get better to defeat you. And then as they start to defeat you, you have to figure out new mechanisms, new means to get through it. So I think Probably the answer is the technology is moving so quickly now that it's really hard to do the job that I, I mean, you couldn't do the job that I did. I right. mean, really, honestly, the, the, the sort of tradecraft I used might as well be, you might as well be talking about the 19th century. Right. Yeah. Uh, 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 Rowdy's incoherent rambling. Thank you very much for your donation. Very good podcast. Thank you. Uh, I spent a good bit of last night actually doing some more research on early 2001 operations. Interesting listening to someone who is on the ground watching it all unfold. And and thank you very much, JR, for being here and, and for sharing like your experiences with with us and with our audience. Like, Well, it's it's my, you know, it's, I won't say pleasure because it reminds me of a death of a teammate, but it is nice to be able to now, 20 years later, be able to mm-hmm. talk about something and tell people how – explain to people how complicated it is. It's not, it's not uh, 
it's not easy to do this stuff and it requires time on target. Yeah. You know, 2001 didn't happen because of 2001. It happened because of what we were doing in the 1980s. Right. Right. And you could say the same thing about what happened in Iraq. You could say the same thing today on probably, I mean, I don't know anything about Ukraine except what I read in the newspaper, but my guess is some of those successes are probably associated with a partnership between the Ukrainians and some part of the United States government. Right. Just say it. Right. The, the foundation has been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Staff Sergeant Omen, thank you very much for the donation. Um, thanks, Team House. Your content never disappoints. Thank you. The withdrawal broke my heart. Uh, in your opinion, uh, does this... So this is your opinion. Uh, it doesn't have to be based on anything you do or don't know. Does CIA have plans in supporting the resistance? He's talking would, about Afghanistan. Yeah, would you think about... Would you think that the agency would have plans in supporting the resistance there, or do you think that would probably just pull out? I mean, I, again, it's been years and years since I've been – I haven't been in the building, and only then as a guest, and that was five years ago. So, sure. I mean, I, so that's uh, – again, let's go back to what I said before. In 1989, theoretically, we stopped being in contact with Afghans. Mm-hmm. Were, did we stop, were we, and, and we like stopped the whole program. Did we stop working with Afghans? Well, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, now it's complicated by, by the way that everything has happened in Afghanistan. But, you know, in 1991 and 92, we were still contacting Afghans in the middle of a civil war. Uh, in 1998, I was still contacting Afghans when the Taliban were in charge. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine that there aren't people in the agency working this problem set. However, I want to reinforce to your to your uh, to the folks who write and to you guys. I don't know. Right. I'm a geezer. I am long out of practice. I mean, it was amazing. I tell tell people when I tell people I was riding on you know on horses at forty six, they roll their eyes at that. You can imagine, you can imagine at sixty seven how useless I would be in that game. So nobody is much interested in what I have to think or say. Yeah, um, Stuart O, thank you very much for the donation. We really appreciate it, um, Jr. Thanks for telling the stories of the accomplishments of you and your team. Makes me proud. Well, thank you very much for saying that. It's uh, the the that time period was some that was really something, and it wasn't just you know, remember. Remember, we were Alpha Bravo, but it was. I mean, if you haven't read the books, I mean, Foxtrot and Kandahar is about uh, Echo and Fox right Foxtrot there. teams. Uh, there's there's a you know there were. A bunch of, I mean, uh, Foxtrot was probably the last of the teams that was behind lines. Uh, but there were teams, I mean, we were we were just two of all those others. And I would have to actually get my fingers and count on my toes to try and figure out how many. But because I'm, I'm, I'm not real good about the alphabet and all that. But I'm just saying there were a lot of guys out there who committed to this and did very much the same sort of stuff. We all fought in this battle along with the ODAs, along with 
the Rangers who went into Kandahar early on, along with the, you know, the, the special boat service guys that, you know, were with me for weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it's a good thing. Um, Scott G, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, How does black propaganda work when the enemy enemy knows who it's coming from? I want to have more effective trash talk in video games. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the enemy can't know where it's coming from. That's the whole point, right? So what you do in black propaganda is let's, I'll just give you an, a generic example. So if I, well, I mean, you don't have to do a generic example. You could do what the Russians to talk about what the Russians did in, uh, in 16. So they created fictional Americans to reside on the web to say whatever they wanted to, because they were fictional. They could Mm -hmm. say whatever. And the idea was to create controversy, to create uh, hostility on the web. So sometimes those fictional Americans were pro-Hillary. Sometimes they were pro-Donald Trump. Sometimes they were neither, and they were doing wedge issue stuff, whether right. it was gun control or abortion or Christianity or whatever. That you, in today's world, it's really it's not easy, but it is much easier to create fictional characters than it's ever been before that are that are that appear real, right? I mean. With, with AI especially, you can look like, or th- that fictional character can absolutely look like he's writing to you right now. Uh, right. And, and the timestamp is going to be right. And the IP address is going to be right. All of that stuff. So I would say to, your, to the writer, it's about making sure that, they, that you are not who you say you are. So Scott, you need some sock puppet accounts. Exactly. You, you need, need you need a you need a when a you're platform. trash talking in gaming, you need to create some sock puppet accounts to create controversial topics. I got, I got one last question from uh, Isaac. It's a little bit of a long one, but he says, "Dear Mr. Seeger, I'm 29 years old in my second year of university, getting my bachelor's in computer information systems. After that, I want to get my master's in cybersecurity." When I'm done, I want to apply for the agency. I would be happy doing clandestine services, being a case officer or cyber ops officer, but I want to work, uh, do the work like you did and go into ground branch, but I'm afraid of hitting the same roadblocks as when I tried to enlist. I could not enlist in the Army because I didn't qualify for medical waivers, even though I'm not medically restricted at all. The recruiter described to me uh, that a MEPS doctor did not want to take the chance on me. Also, I had a record for misdemeanor, uh, which has been resolved for a long time. What can I do to make the agency see me and increase my chances of getting in? Do they care if people were uh, never uh, honor roll students because I'm not? Does even asking questions on a live format like this hurt my chances? <laughs> uh, what, what do you think, JR? Okay, first things first. Uh, nobody in either the CIA or the FBI is going to look at anybody who's still an undergraduate. What we want to see is a person, and again, I've worked with FBI recruiters just as much as I've worked with CIA recruiters. What we want to see is a person who has finished school and then gone to do something else. Because let's face it, uh, 
when you're in college, you probably don't meet nasty people. You may think they're nasty professors, but you don't meet challenging nasty people. And if you're going to be in the CIA or the FBI, you got to understand that perspective. So start with that. So basically what they want to see is four-year degree followed by some work. Actually, they'll be fine with a two-year degree followed by some work. Doesn't have to be military work. Doesn't have to be. It could be anything. I mean, it just needs to be work. Then the other part of this, which is important to realize, is totally different from my world. Everybody applies online. Everybody. And so tell the truth. When you apply, show them what you have done. And then hope for the best, because it's a it's a it's a rigorous selection process. And it is. You know, the vetting process starts with checking to see if what you put online is true. Anybody who might try to make their resume better than it really is probably is immediately going to get rejected. So just tell the truth. Do your job. Get it. Go to school. Go to uh, graduate school. Uh, while you're in graduate school, get a job. Uh, that would be associated with your with your career, and then apply. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Uh, you, you know, I mean, really, but it's not a secret. You just go online to CIA.gov or FBI.gov. It's right there. The application's right there. Do it. And in your case, you did apply. You got rejected, and then later on, when you weren't even looking, they they called you. So it's sort of it's one of those things where. Just because you get told no the first time, like keep living your life, True. keep gaining the experience, keep doing things. Absolutely. And I can understand now, looking back on it, why they weren't interested in me in 1978, because I'd gone to grad school and I had just started working, period, right? I was in Wyoming working, but I hadn't really proven that I could actually hold a job all that well. I mean, I'd proven that I could go to school. Well, that's great. Lots of people go to school. Uh, and you're right. It wasn't until after I had been in the Army. And, of course, it was just literally dumb luck. Uh, but, but, you know, sometimes, you know, Louis Pasteur said something that I like to use this quote a lot, which is, fortune favors the prepared mind. Okay? So if you're prepared then when luck does strike, you, you know, I mean, you're, you're more likely to succeed than if the guy who hasn't thought it through. Yeah. JR, uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. I know I've kept you like way long, uh, almost like three hours here tonight. Um, again, really appreciate your time and telling the story. I hope people check out the Mike four series and, oh, and, and a school for the great game guys. This is a really enjoyable read. If, <laughs> if like, yeah, I, I'm enjoying the, the, hell out the, of this. the link to the books is down in the description of yeah. this video, so you can find it right there. Uh, next week, we're going to have a uh, a 160th guy on. He flew MH 47s for uh, 160th. Uh, excited to talk to him on Friday, next Friday. 
Uh, we're also uh, a bit at the end of an era here. We're moving studios. So by the end of this month, you're going to see episodes in our new studio. This place is going to be shut down. Uh, Jack and I were just happening. looking at emails or earlier. From that we've, two- been, we've been in here for like four years altogether. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and Jackson Smith, thank you very much for the donation. We deeply appreciate it. JR, uh, I would love, I know you split your time between two different locations. When The next time you come through the greater New York metropolitan area, like sometime this fall or this winter, I'd love to have you in our new studio um, because you're also a bit of a, a historian, and I would love to have you just sit down and discuss the history of CIA paramilitary operations or just CIA in general because you have so much information about that and, and you've studied it so closely. You're so passionate about it. I'd love to continue this conversation, um, you know, later on in this year. Well, I'll be happy to. Justin's already invited me to come to New York and talk to him as well. So, cool. you know, I, I think we'll we'll make it make it work. I'm not sure when. Uh, uh, you know, that's the that's the great thing about being a mere wretched federal pensioner. I don't actually have a schedule. <laughs> maybe maybe but, we can uh, have both you and Justin come in at the same time. That'd that be would be cool. amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. guys. Well, it's been my pleasure, and uh, and and good luck as you move studios. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. We're, we're really excited about it and all the things that have to come. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, JR, thank you again. And uh, everybody else out there, we'll see you next Friday. Have a good uh, weekend. Okay, out here. Take care, JR. Thank you, JR. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.